0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit IdeasRoadshow.com for more details. David Pollitzer is the only physicist I've talked to for Ideas Roadshow whom I hadn't met before. I was keen to speak with him on camera for two reasons. I'd long admired the Nobel lecture that he gave called The Dilemma of Attribution, when he was awarded the prize in 2004. It struck me as a very thoughtful, candid, and highly revealing assessment of the way scientific discovery works. Also, I knew that these days, he primarily spent his time working on the physics of Banjos, which sounded, well, genuinely interesting. For me, those two things together certainly made it worth the time to venture down to Caltech to chat with him, and I was very glad I did. Tell me more. I want to know about the Feynman years or whatever. the Because over- I never met him, but I, I just think that would have been phenomenal. It was. It
1: was. He was available. He was cool. He was interesting, funny. It was quite uh, flattering as a young physicist if he'd come with questions. I often went to him, and uh, there were lessons or insights. Like if you ask him a question, um, he'd say, wait a minute. And he had this huge wall of shelves with notebooks, you know, like, the, like from elementary school, the bound notebooks. Yeah. And he'd pull it off, and he'd looked. And he actually explained this in other contexts. You know, people talk about the great Feynman intuition. Well, the fact is that most of those things, he's worked on them yeah. in great detail. So what the question came, because he didn't remember. He's getting on in years. He'd worked on it, and there was something there that reminded him. Um, I once passed his office, Uh, he had a recliner, he took naps when he closed the door, but he's sitting in the recliner, um, doors open, and in his lap is what all physicists know of as the Big Red Book. Do we have to explain what the Big Red Book is?
0: Well, on camera, I think you should explain what the Big Red Book is.
1: Well, okay, it'll it'll come out in a second, (laughs) which is, I didn't say anything, he could tell from my expression what the question was, immediate question in my mind was, wait a minute, You're Professor Feynman. You're reading the Big Red Book. You wrote the Big Red Book. This is one of the most famous um, textbooks in introductory physics, and it's introductory physics. So instead of, you know, asking me what my, he knew what the question was, and he answered it. He looked up. He said, it's all in here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so.
1: Um,
0: Did you ever talk to him about music? Because, you know, the whole bongo Mm -hmm. drum thing, like, I don't know how serious he was about that. Well, he's, you know,
1: you go to the bathroom and Feynman's there peeing and he's uh, doing on (laughs) the urinal. Um, (laughs) The man always was making, you know, kind of jiving and tapping and whatever. Um, uh, And he also said, one of his famous comments, he said many times was, you know, when he's in a nightclub playing the bongos, they don't make a big deal about, that he's a Nobel laureate. I mean, those jazz clubs. Uh, the, the physicists make a big deal, he's playing the bongo t- <laughs> <laughs> um, It's a one-way function. <laughs> one which I will not act out, but I remember, he he had this very vigorous way. Just the first I ever saw him, not in person, it was these famous film lectures at Cornell. Is it the Messenger Lectures? Messenger Lectures, lectures. yeah. Right, right. Yeah. and they got, they had trouble with copyright and Bill Gates finally bought them because he liked them. And they are available online for free. You have to like download. Right, there are five of them or
0: something. I got four of them or something. something, Well,
1: I (laughs) I saw it as a movie soon after a couple of years after it was made. You'll see why I thought of it in a second. Um, The transcript still exists in print as a book, and I recommend it to people. It's a great. It's called the Character of Physical Law. A great introduction to, just it was meant for interested undergraduates, not science majors in particular and I still recommend it, and I was quite pleased. uh, Some discussion with Kip Thorne, one of my distinguished colleagues, many years later, just a few years ago, he said, yeah, he recommends that book to everyone, so I should recommend it. Anyway, um, so the first I saw it was a video, and he's on stage, and they're blackboards, sort of on wheels, these big things. The cameraman cannot keep him in frame. Because he's going across the stage, and he's around the other way. He changes his mind. You know, it's like a NBA basketball. You know, change of direction, right? Um, so he was like that physically. One day he's coming down the hall at me. He's coming real fast. Hey, Politz, I want to see me prove the spin statistics theorem. So this is some very deep, important abstract theorem, and he's taken off his belt. And I'm terrified. I mean, I don't know <laughs> how far is this going to go and what is involved. But he has this great thing that he does with his belt. Um, and I don't know, it was about a week later, he came back to me. He said, Paul, so it's a generation thing. He referred to everybody by their last names. And we referred to him by his last name, Feynman. The only one who called him Dick was, uh, or Richard was uh, Gelman the most deprecatory form of address Feynman could use was Professor. <laughs> or with your name, it's even worse. Professor Politz." OK. Anyway, um, so he came back a week later, and he said, remember that thing with spin? Yeah. He said, what What did I do? I, I don't quite remember. I said, well, I, don't, I think it's like this. And I did it. And then he came back the next day, and he said, no. I think yours was better. So we it was this thing. What it's about is in what sense it captured a piece of the theorem. And the piece of the theorem was, what's the connection between turning all the way around in place, 360 degrees, and having two things and switching them? Mm. And you need some topology or something. There's some... Profound relationship that has, you have to think of uh, fields, Faraday invented fields. And Einstein, I read somewhere, said the second most important advance in physics. This is theoretical physics. First, of course, being Newton who invents physics. Second is Faraday, viewed by many as the greatest experimentalist of all time. But we're talking about Einstein's view as second most important
0: because of the field, because of the predominance of the field
1: concept, and that's Faraday, who had four years of elementary school education and um, wouldn't even say that he was self-taught. He never had mathematical sophistication, and fields were a thing that allowed him to visualize what was going on in a way that had never been done. And in fact, um, blah, 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 physics, history, one of the giants is Maxwell, electromagnetism, Maxwell's equations. Faraday comes just a few decades, a couple of decades older than Maxwell. Faraday knew that light was wiggles in the electric field. And Maxwell knew that Faraday knew that. And they got together late in Faraday's life and were very appreciative of the other one.
0: I, I want to get back to Feynman's belt because you you cut yourself off there. But just just, just as, a, as an <laughs> I aside, have to take my pants I mean, off. You know. <laughs> I, um, uh, I, I recently read a book uh, um, by uh, Leopold Infeld, who I only knew of Einstein. Infeld, Hoffman. I only know the name, but he he wrote um, um, so he wrote a popular book with Einstein all about the field constant back in the thirties. And this and he wrote this because Einstein tried to get him, he was at the institute, and Einstein tried to renew his fellowship uh, because they had been working on Einstein, Infeld Hoffman, or something like that. Um, and the guys at the institute wouldn't let him. So Einstein said, this is in the 30s, right? So uh, it, it was uh, not a very good time to go back to Poland uh, as it happened. And, um, and so the only way that Infeld was able to stay was by, he went independently to a publisher and said, what if I wrote a popular book with this Einstein guy? And I'll put my name in small type, and so forth. So they did, and they wrote this book. And it, was, it wasn't it was just a normal popularization, because it was all about the primacy and the importance of the field concept, exactly as you're saying. And that's okay. world cool
1: So of, I didn't make that story up.
0: Of, of the okay. <laughs> I don't. Well, what, I, I, like I said, I stick with the real world. I
1: stick with the um, real world. A technical I, comment, yeah, yeah. we're here in my office with their banjos everywhere. They sing along, and I don't know if the microphones pick it up, but I hear this one singing along. This is specifically to damp the strings, and that will help.
0: I do very much want to get, because that's we're talking about, or we will be talking about banjos uh, uh, almost exclusively, but before we get there, uh, the whole Feynman took his belt, and there's a belt thing, and now I've, I had that image of Feynman with his belt, he's, he's walking the, down the hall and then nothing happened with the belt. What, no, no, the, he like, does this thing with the belt. What does he do? Well, what, did, what did he do with do the I belt? Do, I gotta do it then. Right? Yeah, you, gotta yeah, show, yeah, you, gotta you, gotta you can't it. put that in an anecdote right. and then just, you know, pass, No? Pass. Okay, well, so you see it goes, it's a little terrifying when a guy
1: comes at you like, I want to see the... Sure, right, I've been uh, warned. Okay, so. okay, there's the belt. Whoops, it's important. There's the belt. And he, he shows it to you, okay. And he takes the two guys. Okay. and he exchanges them. And now there's a twist in the belt. That twist in the belt is the same twist you would get if you take them apart. Instead of putting them together, you take one of them and you turn them around 360 degrees. So this is what you were just talking about before. So this is is a physical... Well, that was what I told him he told me. And I don't know what he told me the first time. And he said that was better. So I don't even know if it was any different. But that is a piece of... Now, the famous theorem that's one of these important things in just abstract particle theory that we believe, we're told by the people who understand the proof, and the reason we talk about it is that very few people understand the proof, very deep, complicated, is um, that it rests on quantum mechanics and relativity. And the question is, where's who here? The fact that there's a belt is the field concept, because what does turning this guy, who cares about turning him compared to this one? And the answer is that he's not just there, he's got, his existence stretches out throughout all of space, these lines, okay, and therefore they get tangled in the twisting, which is the same tangling that you get by exchanging. And so that's an important piece of what does exchanging have to do with turning? And now you know, but a lot of other people don't, the spin statistics theorem. The fact is that fundamental particles have two different ways to be identical. They can be identical as you might think, or they can be identical. Then when you switch two of them, there's a minus sign in the quantum mechanics wave function. And there's a theorem which connects whether there's the minus sign or not, to which has to do with switching them to how they behave under rotations. We call it spin or angular momentum. So that was the piece that he liked. Perfect. Can I tell you one more Feynman please. story that I like? Please, please. He dear. came in, again can, this we, was- we can,
0: just, we can do a whole issue with Feynman. We can come back in the afternoon and talk about banjos <laughs> if you want. I'm happy to talk about Feynman all day.
1: That's a good one. Um, and also, these are Feynman stories that aren't in any of the books. Perfect. Okay, the ones I because the ones I tell are the ones where I was there.
0: Yeah, and I um, wouldn't have heard it so that's for me. Yeah.
1: Um, he comes in. He's got. He, there was a, an issue in particle physics which remains unsettled or unknown. We came to believe he was one of the last people to believe that quantum chromodynamics was indeed uh, a plausible, likely theory description of the strong interactions. He was a skeptic for a long time. He had experiments to prove it. He addressed it for a couple of years and finally had to admit, yeah, that's the way it works. So the issue, though, still remained, does that tell us how quarks actually hold together? Quarks are the substructure of protons and neutrons. So how do you make a proton out of quarks? That remains something that we don't know how to do. And we don't even know that it happens, except that we look in the world and we have evidence that the quarts are there, we have evidence that the protons are there, we have evidence that the quarts are inside the protons, but we can't use the equations. So he's working on that, because that's in his mind the most important thing to work on, and he had some ideas. And he came and there's a lot of body English and uh, Feynman talking physics, especially when it's not finally in the equations. And I, he gave me this, this sales pitch of this idea. I said, Feynman, do you really believe that? And he's heading towards the door. And he said, I will quote Emerson. I think it's Emerson, because I didn't know the quote. On thin ice, our safety is in our speed. He's at the door. <laughs> so it was a real pleasure. Because he, his ta- one of his talents, he had many talents, one of his talents was to connect things that other people didn't see the connection, that maybe they knew. Um, the th- Famous in my encounters with him, real world example, was um, he lived where it gets steep. Uh, there, we're at the foot of mountains here, and there's a community that kind of goes up towards that. And um, it was the year after, or the season just after, there had been big uh, fires where the brush gets burned off and a lot of the trees get burned off. And he's the only one in his neighborhood who buys flood insurance. Okay. and it rained and the runoff things that ran off instead of soaking in and they got clogged with debris and the spillways ran over and there's water everywhere in his neighborhood and Feynman's a genius he was because that uh, were making connections making something. connections so that's what you saw in real time I mean of course uh, over a period of decades there are just awesome things that he was responsible for that we knew about and we read. Um,
0: but you never talked to him about music?
1: I didn't talk to him about music. Um, it was a, a sort of private thing and the, the music, um, my current, that I do banjo research, came with a course that I started teaching just, uh, this'll be my fourth year. I, they asked for volunteers for um, Proposals for a freshman seminar. There was a every decade or so we review the required curriculum at Caltech. Even if you're not majoring in engineering, it's very much like an engineering school. There are a lot of requirements, and the faculty reviews how those work. And I was not on the committee, so I don't really know. But the way I imagine it went was, someone said, "You mean to say students can graduate without ever having had any fun? We should require 18 units of fun." And what they really meant by that was other schools have this idea of a small class of freshmen, senior faculty, um, and doing something out of the ordinary that's kind of fun. Just one of the things they could do. And the proposal was this should be a required part of the fun. Caltech faculty can do arithmetic. If these classes are limited to about a dozen students, that means we're going to have to offer You're going to have to offer Oh, no, no, no. We we won't require it. So they asked for volunteers for a pilot program. And I said, me, me, me. Because I'd always done um, music uh, examples and demonstrations in elementary physics, mechanics, waves, electromagnetism, electric guitar, pickups, who knows, all kinds of whatever I could, Um, speakers, microphones, guitars. Uh, piezoelectric pickups, magnetic pickups. This is great electromagnetism. Um, But you can't give a course if it doesn't really fit in. I mean, so a a science of music, a physics of music course, which exists other places, I didn't think it would fit because... Okay, that was my view or guess. So I thought, okay, they want a fun course. I could do it at a more elementary level than I had imagined because by the a lot of the stuff, or almost everything that I'm doing now, follows on a course we teach to sophomores. Mm. uh, Fall term, other schools have it, vibrations and waves. And uh, if you're talking about freshmen, the only thing you can count on is high school physics. And since it's Caltech, they have a smattering of calculus and their high school physics was pretty good. So if I wanna build on something, I have to start there, and uh, that's got me, well.
0: So, so I, w- I want to back up a bit. So okay. you, you did this course, uh, and you use uh, musical, acoustical methods, or you have used them for years as ways of demonstrating uh, various phenomena or various effects or, or what have you, but presumably behind all of that, is a love of music an experience of music and uh, when, when you were younger yeah. uh, an orientation towards expressing things in, in a musical way or some sort of resonance as it were with with oh i
1: it was always with me in a very amateur sort of way i mean people i know that people when they see the instruments whatever they'll ask me to play and then i'll play and i can see in their faces how disappointed they are um but for me it's always there which is to say there are banjos on a stand, there's a guitar in a stand at home here. Um,
0: So how many instruments did did, did you play when you were... Well, the banjo
1: was the the fifth one. So the the first two, as a little kid, I took lessons for several years, recorder, accordion. Accordion means music theory because you got the treble and the bass clef and you're transposing and you've got chords accompanying the music, so you kind of have a sense of that. I was in a boys' choir, which I really liked. My voice changed, which was devastating because I couldn't. I was was in a boys' choir. Um, Picked up the harmonica.
0: So after your voice changed, you didn't sing anymore.
1: No. Well, for you know, there's this interregnum period when you open your mouth and it it just sort of (laughs) (laughs) croaking comes out. So I picked up a harmonica. Carried it. I don't have one in my pocket now. I'm embarrassed to say, but usually it's just a harmonica. Mae West. Forget it. Okay. Um, it's a cultural reference.
0: I oh, don't know. I got it. I got you it. Got but it. It, it took me. It took. It, it took it me a while. <laughs> I,
1: while know, so I know. That. I know. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, that one I'm pretty good at. I mean, that's to say, you know, I've jammed with people, and I can sound like a harmonica player. Um, guitar. The the old guys referred to it as the folk scare. My circle in high school, everybody played some guitar, and banjo caught my ear. Along then, and I built my first banjo. I guess when I was fifteen,
0: you built um, your first banjo when you were fifteen. So yeah. What was that? The only instrument that you built, or were you building harmonicas? No, and no, that was the, that was the well?
1: first one. I liked shop in high school. Um, I was amazed. I went. To The next year, the shop teacher, actually, we thought he was some mean guy, but he was quite generous. I could use the bandsaw, which is what, in particular what I needed to rough out the neck and to build a form to lay, to make the round drum part. And you buy some of the hardware, various places. Um, built it. I was still paying off uh, the guitar and uh, bicycle, um, so I built it. Ah, uh, so.
0: And how was it? How did it sound? Though, the when you that fifteen-year-old banjo, that you magic. Got?
1: I mean, you. Str- that's one of the things about a banjo. They all sound like banjos, and you don't need a. F- well, there is no ideal banjo. I mean, individual people may have their idea about this is what a banjo should be like. Usually, based on there's someone whose performance they fell in love with, and they figure right. that's the right kind of banjo, but. Overall, there are many, many different kinds in the whole history since, well, they come, they're from around the world. I mean, there are banjos, indigenous, as best I know, to all East Asia, Japan, the shamisen. (laughs) Come on, in Japan, it's called the shamisen. It's a banjo. Um, There's a classical Indian instrument um, called the sarod, which came there apparently from Afghanistan. It's now part of classical. There's the sitar and there's the sarod. In fact, the great, in my time, sarod player, that's the banjo-like one from Afghanistan, was Ali Akbar Khan. He was um, Ravi Shankar's music teacher and father-in-law. The two of them did duets. It's a banjo, so, you know, okay. what's a banjo? Banjo's a, what dr- is, yeah, so a the... drum with strings. So if you mean a drum with strings, that's a banjo. And they came to America with the slaves. This is a very sad story. It's really grim, in fact, so it's worth saying because of how awful it was. Not only was there this trade in human beings bought, sold, uh, the people buying and selling them were worried at how many died along the way because they were put like cargo. And someone discovered that if you brought along a musician and got them up onto the deck to dance a bit and then put them back in the hold, the survival rate was greater. Um, Apparently to this day there's some uh, group in central, uh, or I guess that's West Africa, who have this uh, traditional tale of the devils coming and stealing the the musicians, the musicians, musicians. okay. So it comes to America. Those are gourd instruments.
0: So they're like banjos themselves, they're gourds with strings Well, there
1: are in Africa to this day, there were then, gourd instruments a gourd drum so it's a skin head a drum a stick and the strings okay and i was saying around the world there are versions of that there are pictures from ancient egypt okay of a drum a stick strings i and in america there are people who play all of them to this day and make new make new ones in those styles rather than there's an evolution and there's now the ideal or classic banjo and this is what we'll all play except for some crazy guys actually. They're large communities who play one kind or another. Or even more um, striking, if you go to a solo performance, which some of us do, a banjo player. He'll tell stories, he'll sing songs, he'll play the banjo. Typically we'll come with at least three but more commonly six very different banjos mm-hmm. and might use it to tell something about American history Different eras talk about different kinds of music. And um, they have different voices.
0: So there is something really universal to some extent about I mean, if you, were, if you were another sort of string theorist, as some of your colleagues are around here, you might even posit that there is some universal platonic form of banjo well, the, that, that predated the, the, the world as part of the Big Bang or something like that. Well, the Big Banjo.
1: Okay, we've the, the Big Banjo um, <laughs> chosen because it's loud. Okay, I got one here, yeah. and I'm not going to play it, but I'm going to do one of my favorite experiments. That's this. So we got physics words for that. It's a stupendously efficient transducer, that means turning one into the other, of small vibrations into sound. Outrageously so. If you replace this with a thin piece of wood, um, I built one myself. I meant to bring it. I didn't. Okay. Other people have built them. So it it looks pretty much the same, whatever, whatever, except you've got a thin piece of wood here, you string it the same, you play it the same, and it doesn't sound at all like a banjo. It sounds an awful lot like a dulcimer. So we have to be at the level where we know that dulcimers don't sound like banjos. Now, I know, in conversation with people, there are people who will tell you a story and talk about something, and at the end it breaks your heart because it turns out that in their mind there's no distinction between a banjo and a ukulele. They're just you know, these folk stringed instruments or popular stringed instruments. But you know, if you listen for the difference, um, that's what a drum head'll do. And if it were goatskin, skin, it
0: would make the same kind of noise. This one's mylar. But that's what I was going to ask. So is there is there a particular class, is uh, uh, there a general class of these, or, or, or how general is the class of, of, of skins that would go over this that would make that sound? Well, it's it's got to be a drum. But, um, but what, what is that, like, would most things be able to, I mean, do they have to be some leathery sort of substance? Is there a whole <laughs> different class of, I know nothing right. about I, this, so okay. I'm just looking, like, is there one... Uh, the extreme version, which is clearly not the case, is that you have to get goat skin from some mountain goat in the middle no, of no, the... No, no, <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> Somewhere in here there's uh, what's called a mountain banjo. It's an Appalachian style where the drum head is only about this big. And uh, when people, high school kids, went around interviewing old timers, this was a great high school project called um, Foxfire, and it went for several years. And in one one of the years they found banjo makers. And the deal was, uh, so this is the showing size. It has to be a bit bigger. Could be a cat. It could be a possum. Okay. The bigger one it has to be something like a goat or a cow is what we use. Um, they'll work. Of course, how you treat it, the different thicknesses, they'll sound different. And people will have preferences. And these days, depending on how thin you want it, how impervious to humidity you want it. So if we're talking about real skins, how white you want it, you'll pay for it. Um, The skins uh, react to um, moisture in the air and stretch. And so the setup of the banjo, the head, the pressure from the strings, it sinks down. and You can't play it, so you put a candle or an electric light bulb inside. You try and warm it up before you're performing, if you're performing. Um, You tighten it up, and then the weather gets dry. And if you forget to loosen it, it'll crack. So sometime, I think it's the 1950s, the idea of a plastic head was introduced. And the, you go to the guys, the professional performers of that era, and they'll say, oh, we hated them, except it was a convenience. Okay, Hated the sound of the plastic versus the skin. But they made the conversion. And the people who fell in love with their music now wouldn't play anything else besides the mylar one, because that's what they hear. And it's got a slightly different sound. But there are plenty of people I learned uh, it was kind of fun how to mount a skin head? You buy the thing, whatever it is. It's not leather, it's actually hard like a cracker. Um, you soak it and it gets soft and it's like a diaper and it's stretchy and you do something to it and you let it dry. It shrinks up, it tightens as it dries. And I read uh, a long article by one of the great popularizers of banjo, trying to make them respectable. He had the biggest banjo company in the world, and for a long time. Sam Stewart was his name in Philadelphia around 1890. Wanted to make the banjo respectable. Anyway, telling you how to mount your own skinhead, and in the end he says, well, it's kind of a crapshoot because uh, (laughs) each skin is a little different, and you don't, you have the the hooks on the edge to, uh, there's a ring which tensions it and pulls it down. I mean, you can just stretch it and nail it in around the edge, and then you really have to kind of know what you're doing. Or you can mount it with a series of rings, and then the hooks, like a drum, pull it tight. That's how drums work. Um, but because of the neck, there's a limited amount of uh, play that you have in terms of the tightening the ring down and stretching it. And so you might find that uh, it's either too tight or too loose because of how it shrunk while it's drying so experience helps a reliable source so if you're doing it again and again and again you're better than someone like me who does one every couple of years
0: but when you started off and you were 15 and you made your first banjo Mylar you're <laughs> using Mylar but you also presumably in the in the very act of making it you start thinking about aspects of how can I get this particular sound as opposed to that sound, or, or, or how is the structure really or, or not? Do you just think, I want to make a banjo and see well, how it sounds? Do you start thinking about the physics? Because I want to get into the physics of, of, of the sound in a bit. But uh, is that in your mind at the time, or you just think, hey, cool, I want to make a banjo and see I think,
1: see hey, play. cool, I want to make a banjo. Yeah. And in fact, um, kicking myself now, there's a phenomenon of... Uh, plucked strings, which is visible to anyone who's vaguely observant. So I observed it. And I never, until a year ago, came back to asking, wait a minute, what's going on there? Which is the fact that you pluck a string and sometimes, so we're not bowing, so it doesn't keep going. You pluck and it, it dies down. It right. makes sound. There's a pluck sound. So it, a lot of them, it vibrates and it gets littler and littler gets going. Some of them, hmm. it kind of pulses. And you can see that. And um, kind of, there's some words you can just kind of say quickly, what must be going on. And I didn't pursue it. And if I had and understood it, I'd be famous. At that time, because at this point it's um, an old story, at least in some fields of science and technology. But it had an interesting history. So we'll get to that one. Okay. That whole uh, couple damped oscillators. It's a big, a big story. But no, I th- I just um, played it. It made banjo noise right away. Um, it's uh
0: and what was it appeal to you about the banjo noise i want to i want to talk about characterizing the sound itself a little bit before we get into the physics of that sound and what that actually means that's Uh, an
1: absurd question to a banjo player because i
0: specialize in absurd questions uh,
1: understood um there's a charm there's something special Uh, pete Seeger, late in his life stuck it into every interview just to the um wonder of those, he called them little points of sound, like stars. Lots of them. And out of the zillions of them, any kind of banjo playing tends to have a lot of them, the melody emerges. Um, I remember from an interview he gave, So he's already in his 90s, many people my age, their first banjo instruction, if you didn't have someone who you knew who was teaching you, He put together a book first in 1948, and mimeographed it, and it was kind of popular, and there was a second edition, and a third edition got printed, and still in print, it's still available. uh, The Five-String Banjo, Peach Seeker. And his comment in his 90s was, if that had been the only thing he'd done in his life, he still would have had something to be really proud of. So I feel that way. Anyway, he did a lot of great things. A hero to many
0: people. As, as you're talking, um, it, it does occur to me, maybe I'm pushing you a little bit, I would actually really like to hear you play. Um, because, and, I, and I'm imagining that there, there, are, there are people who will be watching this who think this is all very abstract and I, I, I appreciate that you as somebody who has made profound and seminal contributions to theoretical physics also believe very, very strongly in the empirical world and the experimental world and so forth and I hope to get back to that at the end. Um, and you will recognize the irony, if not the downright inappropriateness of talking about banjos without actually hearing the sound of a banjo. So could I, could I Well, it, would it be possible for me to, the, the, or would you be too?
1: Well, I'll, I'll think about it while I'm answering, okay. which is to say, in thinking of what would I do with my banjo work? I've published in scholarly journals for my physics career. On the other hand, the few things that I read article about other people's work, I found not by going to the library and looking in the journal index, but by googling banjo physics and finding you know, the thing comes up. So the things that I first posted had sound samples, because that's essential. Not just of, well, it it had measurements, but um, you don't really want a sound sample of a pluck of a single string. You do the measurements. There's some graph. But in the end, the issue is, can you hear the difference? between this banjo and that banjo. And the case that I first worked with it was just so dramatic that, okay, I got these three. Um, And it was a question of, it was a building question. There are a lot of issues, because I should add, that was my first one, I built a few over the years. At some point I got uh, hooked into the idea of buying old ones and restoring and repairing ones, and that got really interesting. So there are a lot of design decisions, because there is no standard that you're going after.
0: You're stalling here, aren't you? You just don't you don't want to play the banjo. Well, I could. Like, I, what, I could. I could. Well, here's, here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> here's what I'm thinking. So you're telling me about these points of light. Yeah. You're telling me about yeah. this, that, that I'm asking absurd yeah. questions about why yeah. would anybody want to play the banjo. I'm not a banjo guy. Yeah. I've never really thought much about the okay. banjo. And I'm thinking, I want, I want to get this banjo epiphany. I want yeah, to yeah, what, What's it yeah. here.
1: Whoa whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm not... Unplug me. Oh, I, g- I carry it? Yeah, Which, just carry what it. What works? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, this is my answer. Well, what I was going to say, I, I got distracted myself, not meaning to stall. Um, uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, people ask me to play, and inevitably they're disappointed.
0: No, no, no. Well, I'm not a banjo. First of all... Uh, yeah,
1: you know, it doesn't sound like... Uh, um, you know, sounds, Bella Fleck or... Sure,
0: sure, but it sounds like somebody who... Earl Scruggs. You know, I understand or, that you're not the greatest banjo player well, in the world, but you are somebody who... Uh, well, I enjoy playing it. And, you know, when I get
1: together with serious musicians, I have no problem playing. Um, this reminds me of a great joke. The uh, the technical people, a lot of people on banjo players, are concerned about how do you mic a banjo. And it turns out it's one of the worst instruments to mic.
0: Is it direct? Presumably the sound is directional reasons. in some Which, way? Or what, no, no, or what? no.
1: It's, the directionality is frequency dependent, highly. Right. So it's highly directional and highly frequency dependent okay. until you get to the far field. But then you get room sound. Yeah. You guys know about that, and floor bounce. And So you come close, you get far, you mix them, you go online. One guy types in, so there's you know there's, people ask questions. people. About two miles is a good distance. <laughs>
0: think of what to play you're doing well so far
1: it's a banjo love song
0: So I'm starting to get the sense of these pings that you were talking about as well. I'm, I think I'm starting to understand. And, 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 and also the, the, the use of the, uh, of the, what do you call this thing, the drum thing, right, that, that you're hitting constantly. I mean, presumably some guitarists do this as well, but it really comes out more effectively, I would think, in a, in a band. Well,
1: it's there are a lot of different styles. I mean, there are guys who plant their hand here, and they don't hit it at all. They're picking.
0: Okay. See, I'm trying to generalize again, so.
1: Remember something. Man, I'm too nervous. I'm on camera. Move the bridge and it's out of tune.
0: Floating bridge. Right, now I want to get to that too because this is. Uh... I think this is an essential part of the experience. I'm, I'm very grateful you're actually doing this and I'm starting to. It could have been your preamble, but I'm starting to appreciate banjos like never before. I, I, I have a confession to make because I, I never really liked the banjo, but I'm starting, I'm starting to see something or hear something. So with a G,
1: uh... Okay, yeah. Um, that's a feature not worldwide, but exists and existed in the African instruments that came hmm. to have a short one, a drone one.
0: So um, so what what is explain to people so Luke's a musician but but I'm not. So what, well, what, is, I, what, is, I, what is what is a drone string?
1: So like the bagpipes, pretty much, this string is
0: always doing that. Oh, I see. So, so, so you're, never, you're never changing the frequency of that at all? You're, you're never touching, uh, touching up there? Yeah,
1: I'm never fretting it, and okay. I'll even uh, come up here and do... I won't necessarily do that. I see. No.
0: Does, anybody, does anybody ever do that, or is that...? Well, yeah. There's
1: okay. nothing that they don't do, okay. right? I mean, the old stage performers—they long before Jimi Hendrix—you know—they played it behind their head. They threw it in the air. They didn't set him on fire. Um, so, not only that, it's reentrant, like the ukulele, which is to say, it's—it's it's, the guitar is set up low, higher, 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 higher. Right. Except the highest note is the one up here. My dog. Has, well, in the ukulele, it's not the highest note, but my dog has please. It's um, an octave higher than it would have been if it were four strings on a guitar. Okay. That's the ukulele. So here it's... Now, we get in t- zillions of tunings, okay? Almost everyone who plays the violin in the concert hall tunes it the same way. Uh, fiddlers for dances have their own tunings. They're like buddies of banjo players. And banjo players have a zillion different tunings.
0: What, what does that mean? Because I would have thought, again, my ignorance, that there is one canonical tuning way. So what does it mean to have one's own tuning? How does that work?
1: Well, you got to learn to put your fingers in different places.
0: Oh, I see. So you... you, you Oh, I see. Okay, I, di- I didn't appreciate that. So, so so when one person plays one note over there with a different, it's a completely different note. Okay, the
1: famous Earl Scruggs. Because going from one tuning to another took a while, you saw me. He invented a gizmo which allowed him to just go and change the tuning right away. And then he got really clever. He did it in the middle of songs.
0: Okay. Why, why would anybody do that? I, do I which? Know, why, why would you change, like why wouldn't, first of all, why wouldn't one, why wouldn't one person keep the same tuning throughout? Okay,
1: lots of reasons. Okay. Uh, one is, a simple reason is that the open strings tend to ring better than the ones that you've
0: Right? right. So oh, I see, true. so depending on the song that you're playing and what notes that you want to be hitting, you want them to mm-hmm. ring a little bit That's more. One. Okay.
1: Um, here's one, that, uh, I'm in a tuning which I like particularly, which puts the drone. Not the tonic but the fifth. Okay, we can explain that. So you're in a key, there's the first note of the scale. Do da 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 da. Okay. Da, da. That's an octave. Okay. Da 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 da. That's the fifth. Um, in this tuning, this is the fifth, not the not the bass note or the octave note. And there are other tunings where it tends to be the if you're in the key of C, this would be a high C. But here I'm in the key of C and it's actually a high G, which Mm. gives it, okay. Um, With my class we talk a lot, because the students are interested in like a scientific explanation of the things we know and like. And octaves, that's something universal to human beings, even animals, which is to say somehow this note and this note are the same note. I'll play them again and not talk over it. You can train animals to recognize that, as opposed to other, you know. Those are different notes, but that's an octave. If you play a note and have a group of people, I've done it with my students, and you ask the women to sing, and you record it, and you play the note and ask the men to sing, and you record it, they'll typically differ by an octave. They heard the same note. They think they're singing along. Okay. So this is halfway in the string, and it's double the frequency. In fact, okay, where are we getting? So, that's the fifth. Um, It has this, uh, when you divide the string in half, that's an octave, when you divide it in thirds, it's the same string ringing. This is totally cool. These are harmonics, okay? That's to say, when you pluck a string, it's doing a lot of things. And one of them is just kind of going up and down, but it's also doing like, kind of like that, which I can get it going like that. But it's also doing that one. This is the same string, I didn't tune anything, but it's like in three pieces going. And when you pluck it here, it's doing all of them at once. These two, the octave and the, or rather, are common to all human music cultures. And I'm told you can train animals to recognize fifths. And after that, you're on your own. Hmm. The other, the way you divide between this note and that note into different notes in a scale, besides being sure to have this one in there, depends on the culture. Okay, so this one is a drone. We don't, we don't fret it usually. Somebody will have some particular thing which they're, okay, one of my banjo heroes, uh, I don't know if he frets the string, but um, uh, Jens Kruger came to the US from uh, Switzerland. Ah, one of my favorite, he's a dynamite bluegrass player, but he plays anything. There's a recording, you can find a YouTube of it playing the first movement of the first Bach uh, cello solo suite. it's awesome. I don't know how he does it, it's really nice. You listen to Bach and you decide, Bach wrote music for the banjo, (laughs) because it's eighth notes arpeggios, which means like the notes of a chord. And it's going up the chord and down the chord and up the chord and down the chord and then another chord, and that's what Earl Scruggs played. Okay. So, where were we?
0: So, let me ask a question about the sound. So, we're moving closer and closer to the physics, and so, again, basic question for someone who doesn't know is what is it that makes one banjo sound different from another banjo? I wish I knew.
1: It's the holy grail. Uh, the Holy Grail, really. Um, that fascinated me over the years, especially that you asked, you know, did I do it originally? When I got into um, fixing up old ones mm-hmm. and how different they were and kind of getting into the fact, oh, this is, this is interesting, I like this, or listening to old recordings. And you can tell what kind of instrument they're playing, and you, that's, there's something about the sound, the voice, that's the word that people use, the voice of the instrument, different ones. Um. Is, is, there,
0: is there a sense equivalent to what violinists have? So as you know, I did a, we did an issue with Joseph Curtin on Stradivari, and there were these, uh, there's of course the, 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 the myth or the iconic nature of Stradivari and Guerni, and, 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 and the sense that this was the apex of violin making, um, and it turned out that it was non-trivial to actually understand what one meant by the sound and to characterize the sound. And then when violinists themselves and violin makers and other specialists in that area, professional listeners and so forth, were, uh, were involved in these double-blind experiments, it turns out they couldn't actually tell the difference right. between the, the old uh, iconic violins and the new modern violins. Is there anything similar... In, in the banjo world? Uh, Wait, I'm about... going to
1: go first before someone... But they could easily tell who was playing. So a really profound challenge here that I face when I record banjos and try and understand is what is it in the sound that we identify? Now, with the uh, Stradivarius violins, we had the problem that we identify the price tag But the sound, not only can you not tell from the recording that it's, uh, by looking at the voltage trace as a function of time, or looking at the spectrum analysis using your computer, you can't tell, the people can't tell. But when there isn't something that the people can tell, because they tend to know, I mean, there's an iconic um, Stradivarius and a Guarneri, and they are different. I had the pleasure of talking to, it was kind of a fundraiser. But uh, Pasadena Symphony has a new uh, director conductor, and we were both we sat down and talked about instruments and anyway, so I was interested in the mechanics and he knew a lot but anyway, he talked about using the different violins and accommodating the differences because there are so um, we hear differences, but now for me really it 's fascinating and really frustrating because how hard it is can you understand that in a measurement sense is what is it? It's like voice recognition, not just what is the word, but you know, like uh, the CIA and the KGB, who is it? You have a voice recording and you want to know who it is. We can do that. You pick up the phone and you know from the first word and a half who it is and it's distorted because it's the phone, it's kind of weird. You can't recognize recordings of yourself Uh, That's another story. But other people, we recognize other people, recognize snippets of songs from just the first couple of chords. What is it that we're doing? This is not easy. So there are banjos with very different sounds. um, And you look at them and they're made different. The the parts are very swappable. Uh, This one came with a different head which still makes noise. This is smoother than that one, but it's still a drum. And this is a different bridge, and I guess I put a different tailpiece on it. And do I like... they each make a difference in the sound, but can, do I know where to point on the uh, recorded trace of the voltage as a function of time of the microphone? That's the kind of thing that I face and I'm trying to do, because if you've got a physics story trying to explain the different sound, it's got equations, it's got predictions for numbers. It's not. It doesn't tell you it's gonna sound warmer or tubby, or that doesn't come out of an equation, okay? Right. But something about the relative strength of some frequencies versus others. And, um, there's a couple of cases where I thought I was able to make a little forward progress. So there's some very simple physics, which I leave to other people. It's actually known, it's in the books. Not everyone in the world knows it by any means, but you know how a, str- the, a string, if you idealize the string, how the string works, the drum head, if you just had the drum head in vacuum, mind you, um, how it would vibrate, it wouldn't make any sound. Right. Okay, too bad, you put the air in, it turns out to have a big effect, you put the, the shell on it it has another big effect anyway, the various pieces you can put them together yeah. um, simple equation if you imagine the bridge being more and more massive well you can clamp a gizmo on there and make it heavier and heavier brass and they sell them they're called mutes it's uh, the category is called an inertial mute it's not absorbing the sound at all in the mute, it's just make and there's a nice equation story for that. Um, so that one's borderline because that one's kind of simple uh, physics that I could give as a sophomore physics homework problem.
0: Okay, but let's talk about some of the some of the uh, things that you've worked on in particular. Okay, and some of some of uh, okay. you, you mentioned the the coupled oscillators before, and I, I want to get to some of these uh, things that have captivated you, not just on a on a musicianship level, but also um, melding your physics interests as to, hey, what, how does this work, and how do we move forwards with this, and, and what can we say in more detail? Well, the
1: first one has a good story, because it has a physics end, and lots of physics along the way, but it's also what got me into it. So I mentioned before teaching this freshman seminar on music, and I have the students do a project of their own choice and design. Uh, inspired by the stuff that we've read and talked about in the first half of the term, they do something. Um, What have they done? They've done uh, experiments on human subjects, just uh, sound perception, very interesting. Uh, The first reading we have talks a lot about that. Um, Dan Levitin's This Is Your Brain on Music. It's a good introduction to that kind of thing. And a couple of them in the last uh, couple of years made instruments, that's what I like build a simple instrument and then listen to it and say something about how it works. Um, so I thought I should do a project along with them and kind of I could bring it in as it, along the way and share it with them. So I thought what am I going to do? And so I'm a big banjo fan and I realized most of the design decisions, I have an idea what it's going to do. Like here's one that you might not think of, it's kind of subtle. The choice of wood real important in the neck. Why? Neckwood real important. Because you got the string vibrating, and this is one end, and that's the other end. This end vibrating is talking to the drum head, which is making sound. This end, the string is going up and down. It's pushing up and down on that thing. So the question is, is this perfectly rigid, or does it have some flex? Okay. And the range of woods, the typical ones, are ones that are really brittle. Maple. To, I mean, it's stiff at, at, in terms of the vibrations. Right. Or you go to walnut, you go to mahogany. And the mahogany is softer. And what that does is that the highest frequency vibrations, pieces of the vibration, just get lost into the neck. They don't come back. So you can hear the wood of the neck. OK. So there are, there's a long list of the ones where I know uh, different materials of the heads, different thickness, different tension of the heads, okay. Um, okay, there are two big classes of banjos in America today. They're the ones that those blue gra- bluegrass players play that have a back and it wraps around. Now, on a guitar, you're used to it having on the top an acoustic guitar, like maybe a round hole. Yeah. Violin has the so-called F holes. Well, this has a hole too. It's a, there's a cavity there and the hole is the, if I show it this way, it's the back is here and it wraps around and there's an air gap where, around the edge. Mm-hmm. And the size of that hole relative to the size of the air inside um, determines what's actually the lowest body resonance of the instrument. So strings by themselves don't move much air, don't make much sound. To get the drum head moving, it moves a lot if you're close to a resonance. If it sings like singing in the shower, you hit the note and it gets really loud. So the lowest sound vibration comes from the cavity and the opening and their relative sizes. So there's that's the resonator banjo, it's called. Right. And then there's the open back banjo, where nothing there. And so The question I had, which I didn't know, I've built banjos, is how do you decide how high to make it? And I knew a physics answer for why you don't make it too thin, because it'll sound thin. In audio systems, your woofers you put in a box. Woofers are always in a box. Or something more complicated. The deal is the woofer is going like this to make low-frequency sound, and you're squeezing the air in front, and you're... Uh, expanding it behind, Mm. and for the very low frequencies, the behind sound comes around the side and combines with the front sound and cancels.
0: Oh really?
1: I don't know. Yeah, so (laughs) your woofer's in a box. The guy is driving down the street with their car, just driving you nuts, and is going boom, boom. It's in a box, okay? And Bose figured out more complicated things to do with the box, but basically, you have to eat or use in a clever way the sound coming off the back, because otherwise it's gonna come around the front and be as a wave 180 degrees out of phase. It's compressing when the other one is rarefying, rarefaction is the opposite of compression, and they're arriving at your ear at the same time and they cancel, so it sounds thin. You lose the low notes um, if it's thin or doesn't have a box, okay? I also know that the, this thing can't be higher than about a foot, because it's gonna be very hard to play sure. the banjo if it's out there. That's so why is it here? And before I embarked, I thought, okay, that, I'd like to know that. And I wrote to the four people in the universe who'd published scholarly papers or articles about banjos, only two of them in a proper journal. I wrote to somebody else who is a self-styled expert on a physicist, great physicist. I, I knew his other work on music, physics of musical instruments. And, um,
0: was, this, was this the gentleman that you were talking about before was this Gabby, or was that somebody, that was somebody
1: else? No, no, no. I, I wrote to Gabby Weinreich. Okay. No, this was uh, Rick Heller at Harvard, a great wave man, um, a physical chemist and physicist with great insights about quantum mechanics based on understanding waves in a visceral way. And he's taught for several years now a course at Harvard for general undergraduates. He wrote a great book uh, Why You Hear What You Hear, I think is what it's called. Very ambitious. I mean, it's an introductory book, but it covers a lot of interesting things. I wrote to these people, and they were clueless. In retrospect, I know why they were clueless, because they imagined this poor banjo in a laboratory, just like the one one researcher and his undergraduate uh, coworker worked with the resonator banjo with the back. They've got it on their lab table. It's clamped. They've got their instruments attached, you know, measuring instruments like I have here attached. And they pluck it with a, a carefully calibrated plucker in their recording. And you put this thing there, and OK. That's not how it's played. <laughs> it's played as you saw it, for better or worse. But I realized something, which is, let's see. You might hear it. You're my guinea pig. I know what I heard.
0: So the the tone is changing. Uh, How? It's getting uh, higher one way, and and, uh, Yeah, it's higher there. Yeah. Yeah. I hate tests, by the way. I'm really glad I passed. Don't ask me another one later on. This is not a Stradivarius. (laughs) That's the point. Now, I listened,
1: and I, I I voted for the Stradivarius. That's because it was funkier. Than the in the thing that you did, mm. you had this sample of a computer-generated uh, Stradivarius and a real one, and the real one was funkier. Mm. And computer-generated—that's one of the disappointments of computer-generated; they always are. Right. Anyway, so it gets higher. Um, that's because, like all of the acoustic stringed instruments, there's a, an enclosed volume with a sound hole, and I'm making the sound hole bigger and smaller. Now. There's nothing new under the sun. Good players know this. And they use it. I remember watching, you know, you watch videos, some a young guy talking about giving lessons, advice, workshops with people. He said, Well, before you go out and get another banjo, consider playing your the one you have in different ways. And he's talking about open back banjos and holding it differently, and it both where you very different sound. a different sound here. Okay. Anyway, the holding. Um, so the volume enclosed and the size of the hole determine this lowest resonance called the Helmholtz resonance. It's the sound you get when you blow across the top of the bottle, and you get a much lower note than if you had a, just a straight pipe with a closed end. If you closed the top end and blew across the open one, you'd get a higher note. There's all kinds of interesting stuff about this. And that's the clarinet oboe story, which has all got me excited about physics of music, what's the difference between them. But anyway, to do my measurements, I got this guy here. I'm very proud of this. So I took recordings of, well, okay. I had banjos which which were similar and had different heights. The heights were only slightly different, and I realized in recording them that um,
0: you had three, right? You three. No, that,
1: this is before the three. Oh, sorry. We're gonna find out where the three came from. Sorry. Um, my wife, and there are many heroes in this story. So I, I had banjos that were very similar except for the height, but the height range was small, and I realized that the differences in sound between them, which were discernible, might well be attributable to their other differences. Like um, where the bridge sat on the drum head, that's just a for instance. Because you, once you have frets, it, it, you can't move it around.
0: So you're isolating the other degrees of freedom. You might right. think, you so might think might My
1: wife said, what you need is someone to build you identical banjos except for the rim height.
0: Right. And I thought, well,
1: building banjos, people who build individual banjos, there are many of them these days. They build wonderful instruments to just like that. You know, this seemed more extravagant than I could imagine. Then it dawned on me, there's one guy in the world He's in San Diego. Um, he's a hero. Uh, an industrial arts wonk. He went to college to do industrial arts and he wanted to build banjos and the professors scoffed at it. He dropped out and he started building banjos.
0: What is his name?
1: Greg Deering. Um, his goal was always to build a quality instrument at an affordable price. And along the way, he learned that those are both uh, relative terms. And about 15 years ago, he had a vision of doing much better at the affordable price end than he'd ever done. In January, he passed the career 100,000 banjo mark.
0: 100,000?
1: Yeah, and he, he has, at this point he has 45 employees. For a long time it was him and his wife, okay, and then a small shop. Yeah, I know, this is a strategy.' I'm
0: trying to do the math, that's, that's, that's an awful lot of, that's an awful lot.
1: In January he okay. passed the 100,000 mark and cannot meet demand. Okay? He produces using, and this is in San Diego County, What the, I like to describe it. The guys, his 45 employees shop at the same supermarkets that I shop at.
0: How how do um how often how, how many banjos do the, the, does the average banjo player have? I mean, I know, really? Because yeah. you were talking about the different ways of playing, it, but I know yeah, guitar guys. What? They like most guitar guys have a like, fifty-five. Oh, wait, 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 can, wait. I
1: mean, there's guitar guys and there's guitar guys, yeah. huh? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a money issue, huh? Sure. The musicians, uh, if by, if you do just demographics of people who are basically musicians. They don't have 50 or sure they have two maybe okay because they can't afford
0: it but they have more than one they want more than one like they this, want this,
1: this. oh they want yes but they can't afford more than a couple
0: but I don't even get the there's a bit of a digression. Sure. I don't even get the want thing so because I'm not a okay. I'm neither a banjo player yeah. nor a guitar player but based upon what you're saying, I'm thinking look if I get a really good banjo, and then I can vary it and play it in all these different ways.
1: Yeah, but do you want to take it to the beach?
0: okay. And I don't want to or get in a sand, picnic. I don't want to get sand in my So I want to have well, a, sand whatever. Yeah, a Um
1: <laughs> Or different uh, styles and occasions. I bought a violin, an old one from a repairman for my wife because we couldn't repair her very old one. Anyway, he, he said, yeah, he likes that one because he, when he plays outdoors, uh, He performs with various groups. This is the one that he takes, because his really fine one is for in the concert hall, where you're not subject to 100 degree weather or 100% humidity. No, so it's not just the traveling. They have different sounds. Violinists, you know, there's the solo violin and there's the whatever. Um, So there are sorts of, Saxophone players, trumpet players will have a a few horns. They'll have their favorite one for something.
0: So this is just endemic musicians as a whole. Well, they want. Sure,
1: They want. (laughs) Um, 100,000, so you can't meet demand. Um, there's a lot, the guy is, so I, I, okay. So I had this vision that he, the banjo that I would, uh, realized that he makes retails for $400. And I have a small research budget, I went to my department chairman, I said, can I use that for banjos? It's related to my class. And with that hook, he said, well, yeah. And uh, so I thought, okay, I could buy Three was the minimum number to sort of test the different ideas. Five would be better. but um, And I wrote a letter to the man who makes this banjo that retails for $400. And I thought, well, maybe I could get it wholesale. I needed some extra part kind of thing. And uh, he just replied, uh, come, come down to my place, we'll talk about it. Uh, I should say, yeah, I'm a Caltech professor, but Uh, In talking to him, it became clear to him, Caltech, Cal Poly, who knows, he knew I was a college professor, physicist interested in banjos, he thought that was cool. So I get the tour of the factory. He's really proud of uh, machines that he's invented, uh, recycled using old machinery, um, giving them new lives, and uh, um, industrial production processes that allow him to sell this banjo that ultimately retails for $400. His comment was that not R&D, but um, actual time once the thing is running. How many man hours are there per instrument from lumber to FedEx truck per instrument? That's an accounting you have to do if you have 45 employees. I'm waiting for the answer. Yeah, three hours, 15 minutes. No. Well, he.
0: no, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not pretending to know better. I'm just, I'm ast- uh, that was my astounded reaction. Okay. No. That, that's yeah. what you're supposed to say.
1: <laughs> it takes me that long to figure out which saw I should use and maybe go to the hardware store to get a new blade, okay?
0: So my immediate response is that's got to cut down on quality somehow, but apparently it doesn't. No,
1: but- they're marvelous. This is one of them. Um, uh, okay, Wh- who buys them? Teachers, music teachers will recommend them. Out of the box... They're perfect. They're professionals who perform with them. Other people say, I love it because it's light and I can travel with it. And it's it's a professional-grade instrument. It has a different voice than heavier
0: ones. So by the way, when you approached him and you got the tour of the factory and all that kind of stuff, presumably he was not only excited by the fact that you were a college professor from wherever that was interested in banjos, but also the specifics of of, of your request, that you wanted yeah, the, different, at the different rim heights. At the
1: end of the day, he said, well, what can I do for you? And we sat down, pencil and paper. And it was really cool, because um, I had some ideas of what was the minimum height and what was the maximum height. So it would be something that even I could. I was imagining buying three and modifying them myself. And so he, in the end, said, no, he'll do it. And he could do better, and he pointed out there were some issues where he had to, they would be a little specially different because to have them all be the same, but have one of them be extra uh, thin in height, low in height, the mounting of the neck had to be different and then the mounting of the anchor of the strings called the tailpiece had to be different. Mm -hmm. And so he had ideas of how to do that and then all three were that way. One of them was standard size, one was a lot thinner, the other one was essentially double size. I asked. He couldn't make it double size because he's set up to crank these things out in three hours, 15 minutes. My favorite guy to watch and chat with in the factory. So they're CNC, Computer Numerical Control Mills. So that's a cutting tool. And you mount a piece of wood in it and you press go and there's a turret with a cutting tool and it might be going up and down or the wood is moving and it's programmed to do a certain shape. This is common in machine shops. The guy I really liked was the guy who troubleshoots. So the, the boss draws a design at his computer, computer translates it to instructions for the cutting tool, the mill, and then you put wood in and you press go and you get kindling and toothpicks because wood is not aluminum. And it cares how fast it's going, how deep the cut is, the order of the cuts, the size of the tools. And it takes a while to get those down till you can cut one of these necks. you A guy mounts three sort of uh, basic forms into the machine, clamps it down, presses, go, moves over to the next machine, mounts them, moves over to the next machine, mounts them, goes back to the first one, and they're done, including the cutouts where the inlay will go. He's an old buddy of Bob Taylor. Well, this is a great, it's a Deering story. There were a bunch of guys about the same age in San Diego with a guitar shop. Deering was the banjo guy, and um, most of them are sort of world-class famous for some business. So Taylor sells more guitars, I think, in the US than anybody, acoustic guitars. Mm -hmm. So uh, Deering from his friend gets scraps of uh, walnut. So they okay. Okay, but anyway, the cutouts, this one, uh, the cutouts, this is uh, done like that fancy stuff. Used to be done by hand, it's done bzzz, on this thing, one after another. After so th-
0: the other. those are the design, because when you said somebody makes a design pad, that's what you're talking about. Well, right? there's I mean. the
1: whole, uh, what's the shape of the neck profile, this thing, the how, you know, how thick is it? I mean, there's an artistic question of what's the shape up here, but players will care a lot about the feel thickness Okay, so there's the a great neck.
0: deal of variety, which I hadn't really appreciated. Yeah. I thought a neck is a neck is a neck, but yeah. right. But okay,
1: no. okay. Um, so three hours, fifteen minutes. As I said, it uh, retails for four hundred dollars. And he said, "It's it's on him." So he uh, um, it took a little while because he was traveling, whatever. But they were ready, and I went and picked up these three banjos that were as identical. I mean. Someone who makes them one at a time could not make them that identical because they came off of the yeah. computer-driven mills, were checked for quality control. There's a lot of handwork in the final assembly. That's why, out of the box at a music store, even if nobody knows what a banjo is, the one that comes out, um, one of these, they're perfect and they're they're lovely, really. I'm. He also made improvements over the fifteen years, and I thought they were because I hadn't played a new one. I bought them when they first, one when they first came out. And I bought a used one later to just monkey with it in a funny way, but um, you know, the hot rod concept. But I thought the uh, changes were aesthetic, and there are several, um, but it got better. It got better. It so went from really pretty good to really terrific for what it is.
0: Wow. So you got these, these three. I got and, and the he three. Com- he comped them for you, which must have made your chairman very happy. Or maybe you, maybe you took the money and went to Barbados or something. Anyway, that's no. your issue. Yeah. Um, and, then, <laughs> no. and, then, and then, so now you can do the uh, now you can do some experimentation yeah. and, and sense of so what? Well, I, and along the way, I, I figured out this one. Right. Um, do you know what
1: an ocarina is? I have no idea. Oh, it, it's Italian for a little goose, but I have one over there. So okay. we demonstrate you, an please, ocarina, please, but please. you'll see. It, it's called ocarina because somebody thought they do look like a goose. A goose? Yeah. Goose. That, that. Well, this is, this is okay. just a, a bowl-like thing, or whatever, and it has a whole... So this is like the bottle that you blow across. And when you open up a hole... I'm not good at it. But anyway, the concept is, you've got the same volume, and you increase the hole size, and you get a higher note. And that's how an ocarina works. Okay. And that's what I just did for you with the banjo. Right. Okay, so um, when you sit and play it, you have a certain typical hole size, but if you make the volume inside bigger for the same hole size, the pitch goes down. And there's a formula that goes back to Hermann Helmholtz, one of my heroes. Hero because he's sort of a giant, not sort of, a giant of physics of all time, not just 19th century. Did many things, was a physician, invented the ophthalmoscope among other things.
0: Hey, what's that? By the way,
1: it's for looking in your eyeball, oh,
0: and like diagnosing what's wrong. Op- okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, many diagnostic tools. He was a genius of applied math, which he thought wasn't too important. He's the one who figured out how what a violin bow does to a string, which is quite interesting, and it's a different subject, but it's well known. It's in the books. Um, my students ask me, "Wait a minute, they didn't have." Uh, strobes back then, they didn't have computers back then, they didn't have oscilloscopes, how did they do it? Brilliant experimentation using analog devices. Anyway, so he invented these things and used them as frequency standards and also a way to listen to and detect very uh, low amplitude sounds at just those frequencies because he didn't have a USB microphone and Audacity, Freeware, and, you know, computers Right. the wasso. So the different banjos, the the deep one, it's like a deep body guitar. The, the, so the mystery was that the open back is not an open back, really. So in a sense, that was simple. And fitting the measurements to equations, I was kind of proud, kind of worked it at, uh, uh, it sounded different when you played them. And this issue of, where do you sit? The player doesn't hear the banjo the way the listener does. Right. Very directional, very frequency-dependent directions. So it's best to have somebody play it for you. So I went to a buddy, he plays much better than I do, but we went back and forth, switching, and he liked the big fat one. Um,
0: but you develop, so you, there's a clear mathematical relationship between the rim size and, and how people are, pl- not so much well, the rim size, how, how p- the opening size and how people are playing. And, and, and right. Um, sorry, go ahead. So
1: that's the, lo- the thing that's simple in terms of physics is not the whole sound of the banjo. And in fact, the part that my friend liked, I don't really have a story, a physics story, but the part that I knew was that it had a richer bass sound because it resonated at a lower note, its lowest resonance, the lowest note that it could actually make when you measure it. Very interesting on a banjo, but I'm not gonna turn on the oscilloscope and all that kind of stuff. As you go down in pitch, that sounded perfectly smooth and fine. When you, ask the machine to tell you what frequencies are in that sound. Just like I said, this one has many frequencies are in there right now. The strong one is the one that you identify as the pitch. C3. um, I forgot what the frequency is, 100-something. But anyway, with these higher notes, you can see on the spectrum analyzer, this very strong peak going down, down, down in frequency. With this one, around here, it disappears, it's not there. What's there instead is this one, this one, this one, those guys. However, you hear that note. Um, there's a little bit of arithmetic, and a little bit a little bit of knowledge is dangerous, okay? The key was that I talked about a frequency analyzer, and that has something to do with Fourier analysis and the sine waves and all that stuff. If you have a sound, which is just the combination, a sum of something 200 hertz and something 300 hertz, 200 cycles a second and 300 cycles a second, and they're both happening. You start them together. Every hundredth of a second, that will repeat. You will hear 100 hertz, but in terms of spectrum, there is no Fourier component. There's no sinusoidal piece of the wave at 100 cycles per second. So what's happening is that this note that you hear, the head and the thing doesn't vibrate at that. So the string is doing the vibration, but we're not making sound with that sinusoidal thing. But we've got enough of the other ones so that what you're hearing, not only, it's not that you interpret, people debated this, and maybe, I don't know if they're settled on it. Um, I got my point of view from the book I mentioned by Rick Heller, Why You Hear What You Hear. He said, Okay, let's not look at the Fourier spectrum. Let's just acknowledge that it is periodic. There's some name for it. It's the autocorrelation function. It's periodic. Our brain is smart enough to do many things at once, and part of the physicist-acoustician being distracted is that there's a piece of our ear, the first thing that identifies pitch, it's called the cochlea. So you got a thing that looks like a snail, and when you unroll it, It's long, and it's got a membrane inside that's tapered. And when you send sound in, it vibrates a lot at the fat end to the extent that you send in low frequencies and it vibrates a lot at the thin end to the extent you send in high frequencies. So this is an analog Fourier analyzer. And stuck on the bottom, you have nerves along the way. And so the nerve knows where this membrane is wiggling, and how much? And then you send that to your head.
0: So th- this is fascinating to me, because I've... Uh, um, maybe it's silly, but I've never really thought about it this way. So the idea is, as I understand it, um, we're trying to understand why something sounds the way it sounds. And to understand the way something sounds the way it sounds, we have to look at what our detection device is actually doing internally. We have to understand the, the oh, yeah. physics and the mechanics of, of the inner ear and, and of, of whatever, how our brain is processing the information and so forth, because um, I would have naturally assumed, perhaps because um, I hadn't thought about this at all, is that you don't need any of that. You just take the sound and you're able to process it using your phrase, whatever it is. Physicists are very attracted
1: (laughs) to the idea sound is gonna be simple. Why is sound simple? Because you, okay, we have two ears, but we pretty much can hear with one, okay? So one ear is like a microphone, and a microphone responds to sound by giving you a voltage as a function of time. Right. Real variable with some finite range, function of time. That's the whole thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Ah, yes, but our brain does, well, they'll, they'll, the, the computer guys tell you this, massively parallel. That's to say that the rate at which our brain processes bits is like a a thousand or a few thousand per second. Our computers do billions per second. Our brains are a lot smarter because it does a lot of them at once. Mm -hmm. So for instance, it puts a lot of information into what we'd say a buffer. It doesn't look just as a function of time. It looks at a whole stretch of time and then asks different questions about that whole stretch of time and makes its decision about what it's hearing and how to interpret it based on not just what's happening right now or what's happening, but over some time and over some range and comparing some things. And it's doing all these different things that we think of separately. It's doing them at the same time and reporting back. Neurobiology, terrifically fascinating. And the class that I give, we touch on that and I go as far as the students are willing to go, are the first book we read. The guy used to be a, a rock musician. He became a recording engineer. He went back to school because he got fascinated in this question. And does neurobiology of sound and sound perception?
0: This is Daniel Lubetzky, is yeah, like, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, it's it's <laughs> incredible what we do that allows us to identify and what we like and what makes us happy and what is it about something that that's really good.
0: I mean, to me, there are, there, are, there are two things. So maybe I'm mistaken. But one is how we process the information and all the neurophysio- neurobiology that's going on with the signals. And the other is this notion of what we're hearing. I mean, if you're telling me that in my ear I have some particular listening device, if I look very carefully that's cutting out some signals and looking at some other signals and has this analog device that mm-hmm. receives these things, then if I don't know that, I might assume that... that um, If I'm just looking at the mathematics um, without any awareness of the neurophysiology, then I don't have any selection procedure over one frequency over another or whatever because of the physiology of my ear. So just to say that for someone like myself, that's also a factor that I hadn't really appreciated because it seems obvious we're humans, we're listening to things. But when I say things like, that sounds good, or what does that sound like, or, or how can we have the same sound? That's predicated upon my neurophysiology, of course. That's an assumption that I haven't necessarily, I, Howard, haven't factored into that when I- We do marvelous (laughs) things,
1: which uh, your recording guys know this. Room sound, okay? The act, if you record, you can tell where the recording is made. But when you're there, to a certain extent, you become oblivious. You focus. Our brains are good at focusing on a piece of the information. The visual example is when you look at the painted wall and it's painted off-white and it's just off-white. Okay, you come along with a light meter and you'll find that not only is the intensity different radically as you move along the wall, the colors are different too, the spectrum is different. But we know it's a white wall and we're happy. There are optical illusions which then make use to that. Is this a black square or a white square? It depends on it. Okay, so with sound, yes maybe all well we believe that all the information well it's not even true all the information is not in the microphone because we do some other amazing physical things our ears are complicated shapes and they reflect the sound down in in a complicated way and we move our head i don't know the head motion thing well the visual people have done this for much longer not only, so as physicists, you think you got a lens, you got a screen, that's right. the retina. You project the image onto the screen, that's what you're seeing. Right. That's totally wrong. Not only do your eyes do this, they do this. It's like your cameraman handheld is like, you know, a speed freak. Right? So that's the image on the retina. And what you see is this very calm, steady thing.
0: So what's the stabilizer mechanism of all this stuff? Yes. A single,
1: uh, that—that's the wrong idea. Far too superficial. Forgive me. No,
0: no, go you're ahead. You're not go ahead. stabilizing
1: Keep like a camera. You are creating. It's like a whole Pixar thing that you're taking the pixels coming on the whatever, yeah. and you're creating some Disney cartoon, which is a whole nother reality based on the information from the thing. So you're not image stabilizing like compensating for the motion of the camera mm-hmm. at all, you are creating a concept. So uh, sound has aspects like that to be sure of what we hear like, it ha- like I said, it has to do with what else is going on, what we're focusing on, what we're used to, what's familiar again, the course gets into the whole art thing. We want things that are both familiar and challenging and some balance, and that depends on our past experience and how ambitious we
0: are. I'm wondering, with the, getting back to this natural link between sound and neurophysiology and what's happening in our brains, might it be the case, perhaps not now because we're at a preliminary stage, but in... 50 years or 60 years, when you can start harnessing some of the empirical evidence that we're starting to gain from neurophysiology and start being able to somehow apply it or, 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 or look at aspects of sound in a different way or perhaps go the other way? Does my question make any sense at all?
1: Yeah, but I'm a Luddite. You're asking the wrong guy. Well, what do you think? I'm, a, of... I'm a skeptic and I'm definitely not an enthusiast.
0: Okay, so why? Why? So, granted that you're not an expert. Well, the thing that I like about you know
1: modern technology is we recordings go back um, about hundred years, roughly speaking. Oh, mind you, I'm going to this is off the subject, but it's awfully important. Yeah. The oldest identified archaeological music artifacts about fifty thousand years old, and presumably people were making music long before that except identifying something you dig out of the ground. A, it has to 50, have- 50,000 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, somewhere, Central Europe, flutes made out of bones. That's and you can over. tell because somebody put the the sure. pitch holes in sure. the right place. So earlier instruments, drums and stringed instruments, you're not gonna find clearly identifiable things. So let's imagine a, music is older than that. Comes 100 years ago, we start recording and transmitting and changed humanity forever. So the great thing is we can hear old recordings you know that are on these wobbly 78s and collectors found them and now you can get a CD of it or whatever. On the other hand, I'm sure that per capita we do a lot less music making. We might do a lot of music listening but we don't do music making collectively. Hmm. I think that's for the worse. Anyway, so uh, research is going to, I don't think people are very different from how they were hundreds of years ago, a hundred years ago. We do have all kinds of stuff in our lives. I, I don't see blah, 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 things that we're going to learn that will allow us to, I see the downsides all the time. I guess they're plus, uh, you know, upsides to
0: yeah.
1: the, uh, knowledge about how people work, but... Um,
0: let, let's downside. move on to the couple I of oscillators <laughs> okay. so I, I wanted to no no, no i mean okay. I, I'm 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 happy to have a, a discussion later on about uh how we're all going to hell in a handbasket there you techn- go <laughs> there you go <laughs> how technology is is <laughs> pernicious and stopping us from enjoying simple pleasures in life like playing music as much as we should and we're all walking around with our phones and and running into things but uh but i i, I want to uh i want to move to the um see uh, he, he knows I want to <laughs> okay. move to the to some some of the specific things okay. that you've also discovered in terms of uh, uh, of, of of getting some light of, on the on the physics of things that are counterintuitive or that we might not have thought of before, or how does this actually work? You were talking before about this idea of one string and the different, uh, the effects that it would have on nearby strings, we have also talked about moving the bridge up and down in some of your mm-hmm. works and what effect that would have and changing tension in the middle of, uh, uh, of when a string is vibrating and so forth. So um, well, maybe there, you could talk there were a little bit about that.
1: Uh, yeah, um, OK. There were a couple of projects, and they sort of worked in different ways. and. Um, kind of very satisfying in the end, though along the way very confusing. Uh,
0: so why, why were they confused? Well, you'll tell well, me about that. because it's hard. Yeah. Well, well, tell me I'm about not, what, what's hard. Like, tell me about Well,
1: what, I'm not how, interested how, in questions they already know the answer to. Sure, exactly. On the other hand, if I don't know the answer, finding out from someone else is, is a pleasure. Figuring it out for yourself is a wonderful thing. Now, often it's because someone else has been trying to tell you that all along but you didn't, it still feels wonderful because you didn't, you, you tell them, shut up, let me think about this. And you don't realize that you finally understand what they've been trying to tell you. But in that process, that's a wonderful thing. Sometimes you do it, no one's been telling you, but then you discover other, a lot of other people already knew this. And then every once in a while, you find out that this thing that you were glad to discover, nobody else knew. Or most people didn't know. And then they make a big fuss about it, depending on what it is. Often it turns out that somebody else knew anyway, just by the way. Mm. Um, but the feeling inside that that uh, just profound, it's a profound joy to understand. It's also a mysterious thing, what does it mean to understand? And I've come to realize that different people have different criteria, Sure. what it means to understand something. So there are a couple of things where I didn't understand in the beginning, but I thought I should. That's for me something worth pursuing. And then I thought in the end I understood at least something about it. One of them was just, um, I made these fat banchos and my buddy liked the fat one. So I told him, he helped me so much, I'll, I'll make him one. I'll buy with my own real dollars. So I got a discount cause, with Deering Bancho because I'm now a buddy. But I had to, I had to buy it because it wasn't R&D tax deductible Um, so I bought one and I I made it fat and since it didn't have to match the skinny one it just was a stock banjo and it had a attaching thing like this but the one that he'd liked had an attaching thing that looked like this which was littler Mm -hmm. and this one he didn't like the sound he liked with this one Hmm. and I'd never paid attention to that choice on a banjo. I knew that often these come with some adjustments, and I knew some people made a big deal about it, and I never had. And then I tried to read what did they say about it, and they said a lot of things. You know, their magazine articles, really is the kind of thing you find. And um, none of it made sense in terms of physics equations, F equals ma. I couldn't turn the words, which were a story, into something that had to do with the force of the strings on the bridge, the force of the bridge on the drum head, and how the drumhead moves. Um, until, in trying to write equations for it, I realized that, well, you get, it's called the break angle, the angle that the string bends right when it goes over here, very different, because this one sure. is closer, and right. it's a much steeper thing. And the deal was that that one was supposed to sound more banjo-like. I mean, this sounds like a banjo, earlier banjos sound like banjos, but you get more uh, metallic sound, they'll say, more uh, ping and clang and this. Just, just because just of this because angle. of this angle. And this design is mellower. Okay, lots of sources say that. You go to the Deering website, there's a great guy. Um, he checks each instrument before it goes out the door. He's in the sales department. He's a great musician. And you go to their website, and he'll give you tailpiece advice, and it, this is, uh, that's exactly what he says. And for the life of me, I'm having trouble putting that into some equation model. And I ran into this issue that if this, there's a bend there and the bridge is going up and down, the string has to stretch. Now, you go back to physics that you learn... So as a physics major. I don't know if everybody learns this. The string, when it vibrates, the shortest distance between two points, this point and that point, is a straight line. So if it's vibrating, it's not as short as it used to be. Okay? So it had to stretch to just go sideways. But we have a long song and dance about why we can get away with ignoring that, which is what we do when we get equations which give a really good description of the sound of the string and all this business about this... All of that stuff is in there. And the basic description of how stringed instruments work. Ignore the fact that when you go sideways, you have to stretch it. Now, there are these technical terms. If you go sideways a little or a teeny amount, the stretch is teeny-weeny, Okay. The deal is if the bridge goes up and down a teeny amount, the stretch is also teeny and not teeny-weeny. So I had this sense that maybe this thing has to do with making the string stretch while the bridge is going up and down. And I said, well, that increases when you tighten the string, the pitch goes up and down. So somehow it's like tightening and loosening the string while the string is vibrating. And now the magic of high technology, Google, um, I stumbled on something online which was a description of a discovery made by a professor of music at Stanford. He's a composer interested in digital music, and he makes this discovery. I love this. He patents it, basically, and it turns into, according to the group he works with at least, what do I know, Stanford University's all-time second biggest money-making patent.
0: This is this guy, John Chowning, right?
1: Right, John Chowning. They go into a collaborative R&D effort with Yamaha Instruments and produce the first generation of consumer electronics with a keyboard, where when you press a button, it doesn't sound like electronic inst- an in- electronic instrument, like a Moog. It sounds like a clarinet, or a banjo, or a guitar. So sound synthesis with a goal specific to sounds kind of like an instrument, use Chowning's patent. And so what was, what did he discover? Well, when you stretch a string I'm stretching it and the pitch goes up and that's, I never know whether it's called tremolo or vibrato and I've asked people and they don't know either. So in any case if you make the frequency higher by varying it, you can do it, you can put your finger down. Wrong one. Okay, what Chowning found, because he had electronic stuff, is he could increase the frequency of the. Make it faster, faster, faster. And at some point, that was going so fast that you couldn't hear it going up and down. But he said the tone, timbre, timbre. I never know how to say that word. I don't know how they say it in Canada. Um,
0: That's a wet part of Canada.
1: (laughs) There you go. Uh, of the note becomes metallic. That's what he said. And I said, hmm. I probably said something more than that. But in any case, maybe that's the deal.
0: So, so it seems to me that there, there are two two things. So, I mean, one is, is, how do you physically profile what the tone is, what the sound is, what metallic uh, this is? This was a wrong?
1: heartbreak. I haven't a clue. All right. <laughs> OK?
0: All I know
1: is that I can take a, just like Chowning did, I can take a... Um, computer-generated tone, and give it some frequency modulation, just a little, and it sounds kind of bell-like. Okay, I can do that. And I know that the tiny up-and-down movement is causing a tiny amount of stretch, not a teeny-weeny stretch. To really get the connection, and this is why professional acousticians were unimpressed, because I didn't make the deal right there and then. I come from a different field. I wrote a paper when I was still a grad student where I did a calculation. And I knew the calculation was right because I checked it. And I said, maybe it accounts for such and such, which is something of current interest. And it took uh, the whole physics community, including the big accelerators and whatever, about four years to decide that that was right. It wasn't incumbent on me to to do the whole thing. In acoustics, I'm supposed to, like, settle the deal. Now, and these guys, as I maybe mentioned before, um, you know, there are two published papers on banjo acoustics. These guys work on violins, they work on guitars, they work on pianos. There's a literature of, you know, eons. So if you've got some new idea, it has to fit into that, and you've got techniques, you've got knowledge, knowledge base. So, you know, this one is a bit of a heartbreak. I don't know. And I I think perhaps my biggest contribution is to draw attention to the instrument, which I think is charming, and to say there is something in common about the sound of all banjos, by which I mean drums with strings. So it could be a gourd with a goat skin and gut strings. It could be steel strings, mylar, top, and a resonator back. They sound different, but they're recognizably banjo. And they're, if they're recognizably banjo, it must be in the accounting of that aspect of their sound. It has to be in the fact that it's a drum with strings, because <laughs> that's all that's in common.
0: But might, and they all have this might stretch there, and, Might there not be some phenomenon which is analogous to this with a piano or with some other instrument? I mean, might, might there not be some connection with, with what you found and things that are not okay. necessarily banjo? other,
1: well, that I tried to put in my paper. Other uh, acoustic stringed instruments have some version of this, but I can, you know, down the line tell you why, much less important. And it's related to this phenomenon. It's related to the fact the banjo is loud. For a given effort of the string, you get much more volume. There is much more up and down motion of the bridge. Now, some instruments have a bridge with a break angle. Flat-top guitar, for instance, carries, when the bridge goes up and down, the end of the string goes up and down with it. See, it's it's the fact that this end is fixed, while the bridge is going up and down, that makes this piece stretch.
0: But you know what this reminds me of? What, what this seems analogous to? And maybe I'm maybe I'm overstating things. But um, this whole idea, when Kepler was actually looking at the planets and seeing what, what the planets were, what what shape of the planets were, everybody thought they were circular. Blah 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 blah. So we have. Happen- wait wait.
1: No, they didn't. Ptolemy knew that there were
0: epicycles on Sure, but they epicycles. were all cir- circular, mo- circular combinations, okay? So everything was... Cir- well, that's called Fourier analysis. Just hold on, let me finish. Okay. Me, I'm, go- I'm going for an, an-, an analogy okay. here. So okay. you can tell me that the whole analogy is wrong, or okay. superficial, or just you the- can tell me whatever okay. you want to okay. tell me, but let go me finish my Sorry. analogy. Right? So the analogy is um, Kepler's looking at things, and it so happens that uh, Tycho Brahe, or Ty- I don't know how you pronounce his name either, but anyway, the Danish guy with the golden nose tells him uh, to look at Mars. So he's looking at Mars, and lo and behold, takes him, whatever, seven years or whatever it is, and he realizes, hey, it's an ellipse. Now, it, he, he's able to make that discovery uh, arguably because Mars has the greatest eccentricity of these planets that he would have been looking at. So had he looked at some other, other, he, he, he might not have actually noticed this. So my analogy, somewhat tortured analogy, is that you're saying uh, banjos have these effects because of their the particular banjo-like nature of them, but analogous effects might be smaller, they might be harder to detect, they might not be as meaningful in other instruments, but it's still enough, it's still you see where my analogy's going?
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't, well, no, you don't like, you don't, I don't like it, because no. <laughs> <laughs> what drives this, it's kind of marvelous, there's this long tradition of physicists, it's not all physicists by any means, it's a small number, who get hooked on music, because it's important to them personally, I think, and they see it important culturally, yeah. And so you have to make, if that's what you're doing, you have to make contact with the music as music. So yes, uh, there should be some aspect of that. But if it anywhere. doesn't actually
0: translate into music as right. music, it does really matter. Right, but
1: the claim was there are things which just distinguish. I, I'll give you an example from when I read Preparing Myself for the Course I Give, that my favorite example is a comparison of the clarinet and the oboe. Okay. And the question is, well, why they sound different, and can you account for the difference in sound? And it's a story, I won't even try to do the physics, I can do it at the high school level, it needs a lot of diagrams, a lot of concentration, but the important thing is not the single versus double reed, oboe has a double reed, uh, clarinet has a single reed, that turns out to be a consequence, not the cause of the difference. The deal is that most of the clarinet has a straight pipe and almost all of the oboe has a, what's called a conical bore. It's a fixed angle thing. And well, that's why it has a single reed because it con- has to come to a point and it doesn't quite yes. it, So the, the mouthpiece of an oboe has to be very skinny because that's the key. Well, it's a
0: consequence of the shape, basically. That's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's also, that's why one of my colleagues said, oh, you know so much, how come the orchestra tunes to the oboe? Well, that's because it's shaped like this. There's no place in the oboe where you have two cylinders of the same diameter, one just slipping uh, tightly around the other, and you can make it a little longer, a little shorter to tune a, a, wood, a wind instrument. The oboe, you can't tune it. And
0: Did he shut up after that? Did you, did you put him in his well, Everybody,
1: not, not, they're yeah, they, <laughs> they're all happy with that one. They tuned to the oboe. Um, So what you find when you do this, there's names for the mathematics that are very intimidating, but as I said, you can do it at the level of high school physics. So it is about spherical Bessel functions, but you can do it. The deal is that this guy has all of the integer multiples of the fundamental frequency. That's to say the harmonics that come along with the the lowest... Frequency oscillation are twice it, three times it, four times at five times it, one. The clarinet, you go through the same song and dance, and you only have the odd integers. The even integer ones are missing. Hmm. OK. So I, that's what I said. I said, hmm. I then took one, some freeware on a computer and programmed a sound generator with a bass note and a lot of the integer, like a rich spectrum, a lot of integer multiples of the fundamental frequency. And then I took a second program and took out all the even ones. And I played one, and I played the other, and I nearly fainted. Because no reeds, no bell at the bottom, no pitch holes, no fine choice of wood. It's just a computer with a bunch of frequencies in it, and then the other one with half of them missing. And you could tell which was clarinet-like and which was oboe-like. And I thought, that's wonderful. Now, but just as you said, this is a long story, the flute also has all integer multiples. And a fl- flute has n- sounds nothing like an oboe. So the story was good for telling the difference between the oboe and the clarinet, because they're otherwise rather similar. This is a huge piece of their difference. And you can hear it just from the computer, the signal generator. What happens with the flute? is that it has all the integers present, but the question is, what are their relative strengths? And the flute has a very pure tone, and there are very few of them. You don't have higher and higher frequencies mixed in with any appreciable strength. So appreciable strength becomes an issue. What a good microphone and a good computer can pick up and identify as a tiny piece of the signal is different from what we hear. And we recognize the flute. Okay, heartbreak, but I think it's not my students, it's their parents. I wanted a a demonstration to play out of real music with a real oboe and a real clarinet, and to sample, to hear, can you tell which is which, and I played them from the introduction to Peter and the Wolf, which people my age can kind of, at least remember a few of the animals. So each animal has a solo instrument. It has a, a theme through the yeah, story. I want
0: to know where the heartbreak's coming, so.
1: Three years, three classes, not one student knew where the music was from. They knew which was the clarinet and which was the oboe. Oh,
0: well, this these is are, social commentary now. That's I mean, right. all you really care about is the clarinet. and the Oh, for goodness sakes. So, you're, so this is all leading up to the fact that you're upset about Peter and the Wolf? not Totally. Not being, okay. <laughs> totally. <laughs> these are multi-instrumentalists. These are like the
1: first violin in some youth orchestra.
0: Right.
1: OK? OK. Yeah?
0: Okay. Um, so let's—if uh, that's a good opportunity <laughs> to move into social commentary a little bit.
1: Um, we have one more physics thing, but we'll get back to that. No, 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 let's not. Let's no. do the physics thing. Oh, right? let's you want to do, do the, the physics one?
0: Yeah, let's do the, Well,
1: because it's a huge one.
0: OK. Well, we save the best for last. So yeah.
1: OK. Well, of, of the ones I've done, because after that, it comes to like future plans or work in progress. Um, I said that the string sometimes dies down and gets bigger and right, dies down right, right, and right, gets right. bigger.
0: Right, right. Right. Right.
1: And I actually knew, I stumbled on a paper by someone whose name you knew, Gabby Weinreich, a professor uh, of physics at the University of Michigan.
0: That Joseph Curtin mentioned. That's you know, right. It was, well, they worked so, together. I, I've never met him. but Okay. Joseph, okay. But.
1: Well, he was the, he was the, the physics uh, end of that uh, collaboration. He'd written a paper about uh, the piano and what makes the piano sound different from other earlier keyboard instruments. Okay. So again, he had fallen into this late in his life as a physicist. And I must say, he's very well known in that field, highly respected, that's to say, a musical instrument acoustics. But he's got definitely physicist taste. So his question was, what is different about the piano than these other instruments, and there are many differences. He want, want, he, there's something that he thought was really important because the piano, if you will, is both loud, piano forte, and has a long sustain of the note. The notes linger longer unless you damp them out. In fact, that's why you need a dampers, unlike you know, a plink, 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 plink kind of thing. Okay, I never thought of this, but it's in the paper, and I say, sure. You open up the piano, almost all of the keys, the hammer hits three strings. Every note is three strings. Right. There's a small section of twos and a tiny section of ones, and the ones don't sound like music. Okay? So it's, most, it's a few doubles and lots of triples. And his story had to do with what's the deal when you hit three strings tuned to the same note and then let them ring? Okay. Very important piece of physics. So each string is, we'd call it an oscillator. They have the same frequency, the three of them. And they talk to each other because they're attached in the same place. So there's a, there's a bridge or a, a terminus to the strings and one of them's going up and down, it's pushing up and down on that and that, the next one feels that up and down so right. they can talk. So what happens with talking? Very important concept. We'll just talk about a swing in a playground. You have a kid on the swing. If you push the kit, you can get them going really high, even with a gentle push, as long as it's at the right time. So if you push at a steady pace, if it matches the natural swing of the pace of the swing, the swing swinging gets bigger and bigger. And that's called resonance. So, And that's a general feature when you have two things which have the same frequency, if you let them talk to each other, they can have a huge effect even if the talking is very quiet and a little at a time because it keeps happening. So the deal is if you push the swing and your pushing is just a little too soon, at first the swing will get going, but after a while you'll find that you're um, out of sync. And when the swing is coming towards you, you push it and you slow it down instead of speeding it up, okay? So it's really important to be very close to the same frequency. So here you got these guys having the strings having a big effect on each other because they're tuned to the same note. And he begins his paper by saying, this is the subject of coupled damped oscillators, which is, uh, arises in many fields, but is generally poorly understood. Um, so I, I pursued it and wanted to understand it about my banjo strings, because I was convinced that there's some analog. I was very interested in how the strings talk to each other, actually. That was the, in my mind, and I'll get back to that as a thing to pursue, that um, when you, uh, well, those two. But I said that this one, the first one, when you pluck him, he has that in him. And this second one has this in it. And when I, those are the same note. So there are two strings that are adjacent to each other on this bridge that likes to move a lot, where part of their sound, their two separate strings, have the same frequency in them. So the fact that this can talk to that changes. In fact, you can hear it if you really listen carefully. I don't know if we have, Good. if I damp all the strings but one, well, here we go, or let them all ring out, Sound. Yeah. yeah. or oh, let's try uh, let, we have another one this is a huge deal yeah. that's the string who i plucked talking to the other guys that's called coupling and the big coupling is the piece of this string which has the same frequency as the, the fat string those are two different strings and they talk to each other but there's a lot of them who talk to each other. Um. Anyway, if I'd organized my head, I'd I could get four of them, which have share a common frequency component. So you hear that. So that's what was interesting to me in the back of my head.
0: So, so there's this question just, just to back up. Uh, so so what, uh, what is it, Gavin Wein- Weinreich? Weinreich. So his idea is that um, the, 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 the resonance uh, in terms of the sustain of these things lasting for a longer period of time uh, is, is linked to, uh, well, naturally linked to the notion of how many of these strings are being hit and if you break up the, the frequencies of the, the minor well, the overlapping he, frequencies of these things. What exactly is the claim that it would be would long? First of all, longer? it's louder. If you have three of them,
1: it's more than it's nine times as loud, not three times as loud, because initially they're all pulling on the same bridge. So it's not like each one separately on this, right. on the bridge. That would be three times as loud. But the bridge is doing more because the bridge is moving more, okay. and the volume is the square of the okay. something. The next item, which he says is psychoacoustics, which is the decay of the sound, is not like a single oscillator. If you, the thing you study in freshman physics is you have a mass on a spring, and it's got some damping, and the, it just the amplitude gets littler and littler. The period stays the same, but it just dies down.
0: So these are coupled. So therefore, there's some. Kind well, there's
1: different. There's some long modes. They're, okay. It's not a single exponential. We hear the loud at first, and then we hear a long something with a much longer half-life, which wasn't the first one. But we hear loud, and then we hear long. So that's different from a single exponential, which has a single half-life. So it's got these long components, which are combinations of the string, which only let the sound out a little at a time, because they hide it from the sound-making mechanism. In the case of the banjo, there's, when the strings go up and down, they force the head. When they go sideways, they don't. They're still vibrating, but they don't force the head, so they're not making sound when they're going sideways. OK. Now, the, the history and the heartbreak and the could have been famous kind of deal was not only physicists take physics courses in college, applied physicists, astrophysicists, astronomers, physical chemists, chemists in general, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, all these people take the basic physics syllabus. And that includes the mass on the spring and adding the damping and see it decay exponentially. It includes coupled springs where you have, uh, or coupled pendulum where the one is doing something to the other and they can move together, they can move opposite or you can have one going and then it gets the other one going and then it gets the other one going and it does that kind of thing, okay? called Beats. Um, And then they do the forced oscillator which is if you come in from the outside and just keep pushing steadily because you have a power power source, how does the system respond? And if you're close to one of its natural frequencies, it resonates. And if you're far away, it doesn't do much. And there's a formula for all that. They don't do the coupled damped oscillator, the so-called transients. What happens if instead of keeping going, you just disturb it? How does it die down if there's more than one? Now, there's a reason they don't do it. The reason they do it is the simplest problem would have two oscillators. And what you discover is that the, if you couple them, that's fine. We can solve that problem. If you now damp them, there are special cases where it's really simple and it's just like you had one oscillator. It's damped, one oscillator. Damped. But the generic case, in general, to solve the problem on the blackboard, you need the solution to a, what's called a quartic polynomial. Okay? In high school, we learned the Babylonian formula for a quadratic. You look up in a book, there's a cubic. It was figured out in the 16th century. Student of the cubic guy figured out the quartic, and then much later mathematicians proved that that's it. You cannot solve a polynomial where you write down the answer on the blackboard in closed form for higher order powers. The problem is that this fourth order polynomial, the quartic polynomial, you can't write it on a blackboard. You type it into, now your computer has math software, and it spits out four pages, which is just one line. The formula is four pages long. So you can't look at it and know what's going on. So people don't do that. But what did they discover? In, so it's not, that's why it's not in the syllabus. If you go to advanced textbooks, they're misleading because they say, well, this is the problem. And it's just like the other one, but it's complicated. They don't tell you anything interesting. Now, but in many fields, this problem arose. And people had to figure out their own way to deal with it. But it was not part of their uh, tool bag from elementary physics, the way the us, the spring, the pendulum, the, the falling ball, the bouncing this, the orbiting whatever. They're things that everybody learns. This is not one of them. The oldest example I knew of was actually in particle physics, 1955, Murray gell and Bram Pice, the neutral K mesons. Um, it's not far afield, uh, I won't tell the whole story, but uh, Bruce uh, Winstein was his name, an experimentalist at Chicago who worked on neutral kaons, which for a long time were this font of astounding information. That's the system where we first discovered that uh, the fundamental laws are asymmetric in time. That's the simplest way to describe it. There's a long story, but anyway, that the laws of physics are not the same, forward or backwards. And that's a long story to explain to a normal audience. They say, duh, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, we know that. No, you go play pool and when one ball hits another ball, or they do, if you show the movie backwards, the backwards movie satisfies the same equations of motion. Okay, Humpty Dumpty is about the fact that if you have the 10 balls in a triangle and you shoot one in and they go out, if you show the movie backwards, you know that that is impossible. It's just hard. This uh, uh, plain example is, is, why is it easier to um, pull out of a parking place than to park, parallel park? Because all you have to do is exactly the opposite. One is easier, one is harder. It's not that one violates any rules. Same okay, neutral counts. Anyway, Winstein, the experimentalist, when he gave a general lecture about his work, he came in with uh, two, a system with two pendula that he'd built in the machine shop, with a weak spring coupling them and an adjustable damper on one of them to show some of the phenomena as it applies to the neutral chaos. The next example I found was from one of my colleagues who's since passed away, I mean a long time ago he passed away, 1960s mechanical engineer interested in earthquake safety. You got a building, you kick it at the bottom with earthquake and you want to know what the building does. And what they found out from computer simulations is very often there's a jolt and the building starts swaying, and somewhere it gets big. Now, if it doesn't sway too much, it might die down. But if it sways, a, that growth for a while could now break the building. So it's called transient, nowadays it's called, he didn't call it that, transient growth, that you kick it, and for a while there's some part of the motion that gets bigger before it finally dies down. And this is reflected by, by this chordic uh, equation. Well, if you, if if you, you could, could solve it, I didn't bother to do it. You would find that there. All he knew is that there were simple cases where this didn't happen at all. He could prove it. And engineers for a long time have known, if you program a computer to just solve Newton's laws, to find the motion, because we just got springs and dampers. You just put it in a computer. It has some wild solutions that are very sensitive to the par- parameter values. Okay, That's true. The final... Heartbreak, straw. This is about 15 years ago. Um, but we go back 100 years. Reynolds, of Reynolds number fame. The problem that he was uh, interested in and addressed was flow of water in a pipe. And if the flow is reasonably slow, the, for actually for a couple hundred years people knew how it moved smoothly basically the pipe, the intermolecular interactions make the water come to rest at the surface of the pipe it's moving fastest in the middle you can ask how fast does it move depending on where you are in the pipe that's something you can solve and the water is just moving all of it, the flow lines are straight along the pipe and you speed it up and at some point it goes turbulent and his genius was to understand that the point at which it becomes turbulent can be characterized by a pure number that would tell you about pipes of all sizes, diameters, speeds. There's a relation between the diameter of the pipe, how fast the stuff is going, and the viscosity of the liquid, so it doesn't have to be water, it could be oil, and some combination of those when it's bigger than 2,000. 2,000 what? 2,000. 2,000. Um, That's the Reynolds number that's dimensionless. It goes turbulent. Okay. So he finds that. And we name Reynolds number after him. Good reason. The theorists, then apply a technique which they'd used successfully in many cases. It's, we don't understand in terms of pencil and paper turbulent flow, but we know things like when is something unstable or that there's a, a line of analysis like I have it. It's way over there. We could, I could do it too. Yeah. Anyway, if you have a heavy fluid on top of a light fluid just sitting there, the heavy fluid should fall down. So I have a bottle there with water sitting on top of air. The water should fall down. But the fact is that the air has to get out of the way. Mm. So it's possible that if you just very gently set this thing up, it would sit there. And the question, the way the physicist asks it is, let's imagine now that the interface is not completely flat and smooth, but has a little ripple in it. You can now ask, if I start with a little ripple, will that get bigger or will it die away? Because there's a lot of stuff to make things die away. There's viscosity and surface tension that want to make that thing be flat. So if you put in a little bend to the surface, will it get bigger or littler? And you can actually find, for a given situation, what length at which it grows. And that is something you see. They're called salt fingers in lakes. I learned this from teaching a good course, where you have the salt water above the fresh water. The salt water, there's some finger size, the width of the finger where the salt (laughs) likes to go down. Um, The guy who invented it, um, Jeffrey Taylor, uh, knew um, the equivalence principle. That means the same physics applies to explosions. If you want to blow a light, less dense material through a heavy material, the heavy material has more inertia, the light stuff wants to go faster, how does it finger through? It's also important to stellar structure. Okay, so that's a general idea of taking something that's stable and asking how does it respond to little perturbations. So we now take the pipe flow where we know what it's doing when it's just all moving straight, and we ask, what if it deviates slightly from just going straight? Will those deviations get bigger or littler? And over the decades, with more and more mathematical precision, people showed that every conceivable little wiggle will actually get littler. None of them grow. So the conclusion was pipe flow is stable to small perturbations. And therefore, it must be surface roughness, even though Reynolds number seems to describe all the pipes. It must be something we don't understand. Who knows? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. That problem was the the key to that was a rediscovery of what Gabby Weinreich knew for piano strings, what Murray Gilman knew for neutral kaons. It's not taught in basic physics, so nobody knows it. The situation is a little more sophisticated, but it's mathematically the same that the, um, when they said that every perturbation gets smaller, they had a certain way, what do you mean by everyone? You didn't right. try everyone, right, okay? Right. You tried a ter- certain set, yeah. which they believed would describe yeah, everything. Would be reflective of, the, of And that's true, that part is true. The part that wasn't true is that the set that they had was pathological with respect to some criteria that they had been used to assuming. What an awful thing, okay? So this is something that math people understand. There are frequencies, those are eigenvalues. There are motions, those are eigenvectors. The eigenvectors are not orthogonal in this problem. That is true again, for the physics geeks, back to the couple damped oscillators. In general, the, there's some, if you only have the coupling, you can find some variables in which it decouples. It's sort of complicated, but there are motions that occur totally independent of the other motion. Once you have the damping, generically, it mixes those up. And there's no motion that's separate from the other motions. The eigenvectors are not orthogonal. Turns out this is a very generic feature of many systems, except for the ones that we teach in undergraduate and graduate physics, Okay, I asked my physics colleagues, uh, whatever it was, many months ago. Not one of them had thought about it, heard about it, or had, they had some interesting things to say, Okay, Suggestions of things to pursue, but couldn't tell me exactly what happened. By the time I figured out what happened, I'd asked around, someone referred me to a guy in applied math. He said, oh yeah, that's real embarrassing. We figured that out 15 years ago in applied math and in fluid mechanics. The fluid mechanics people know all about it. So that's about 15 years old, transient growth. And it's now in chemical uh, physics. I'm sure there are economics people who are interested in it. And so what's the deal here? The deal is, even if you have one string, it can go up and down, and it can go sideways. And to a first approximation, they don't do anything to each other, but they talk to each other a little. So if you start at doing one, after a while, it's typically doing another. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, by the time you're done, instead of having two with exactly the same frequency, you always end up with two different frequencies. You can't get rid of the beats. The fact That's this throbbing is the presence of two different frequencies. You, this is called level repulsion in quantum mechanics. So for people who majored in physics, they learn the coupled oscillator part, not in mechanics, but in quantum mechanics. OK. You add the damping, and it mixes the things that have a fixed frequency. So now the question is, what happens? Yes, there are particular motions which have a given frequency and a given um, damping time. But when you add them, uh, there are different things that come out. I I don't know how to say it without writing down formulas. But there are, if you remember back to high school arithmetic, when you solve the quadratic equation, there's a square root minus b plus or minus square root of b squared minus 4ac, we all learn that by heart. That square root, the thing under the square root can be positive or negative. When it's negative, this is uh, trouble because that's not a real number. We learn something about the solutions that are different depending on the sign of that thing in there. With two oscillators that are coupled, even if the coupling is weak and the damping is weak, which should be a simple problem, we can visualize it, um, depending on the sign of what goes under a square root, the nature of the overall behavior is radically different. And I should say that from Gabby Weinreich was to realize we're not going to write the, the chordic formula on the board, but if you start out with two oscillators that have nearly the same frequency, you can solve the problem approximately, which is what he did in equations. I thought it was worth rewriting it for no other reason than all the people who cite his paper, which is famous in uh, acoustics and musical instruments, mostly they don't understand what he's talking about. They kind of know roughly the result, but it, he does it in a rather sophisticated way. Um, his physics was always more sophisticated than mine. I'm a very just simple-minded guy. Anyway, um, there, I, what I realized, there's a way that it could be done on the blackboard in the sophomore syllabus, and if it had, had been done, well, Newton could have solved the problem, I'm sure. Rayleigh writes about the problem in the late 19th century. That's another great physicist who spent his life doing Uh, sound and acoustics and writing about it and having insights. Anyway, he writes about it as a, he recognizes the problem as one where this, we can't solve this except in some extreme conditions, but he doesn't give you insights about the general problem. And that's what came ultimately from applied math and fluid mechanics, that the generic problem has these non-orthogonal, not perpendicular, I can I, I could can do, do, do it with, with my fingers, but I don't know.
0: If no, no, no. That. That, 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 okay. that, that's good. I mean, uh, and I think uh, for people who have the, the mathematics and the conceptual picture that way, um, I think that's that's an awful lot of information that they could also go look something. Transient growth is for, what it's called. But for people who don't, uh, I think there um, there there are physical pictures that you've. You've highlighted, I think, quite well, and in, in the different physical instantiations of this, from earthquakes to mm-hmm. to fluid flow and so forth, that people can understand this idea of a. Uh, I think they can understand the whole idea of, of of damped coupled oscillators, but I think they can also um, in, envision this idea of a counterintuitive situation where you would expect something would 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 just die off and then would 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 grow. But, and, and that's interesting. It
1: and it's the the point is that. It, there's some level of abstraction which physicists tend to really love. I mean that's why we teach the mass on a spring, not because masses on springs are important in our everyday life, but some analog of that, actually very close analog of that, you will find everywhere, okay? That's why we do that.
0: But this also brings, brings to mind one of the reasons why it's so interesting and energizing for me to talk to you um, because, first of all, you're, you're, you're clearly passionate about what it is that you're doing, and you're passionate for all sorts of reasons. You're passionate about it for musical reasons, for aesthetic reasons, uh, yeah. for uh, just uh, emotional reasons. Um, but there's, there seems to be this belief that many people uh, who have been very, very accomplished scientists hold, which is that it's worthwhile looking at things around us that we don't understand, or that we don't understand as well as we might. Rather than this whole, my, my day job is to understand the secrets of the universe and get the one big equation which necessarily uh, explains everything. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's more a question of style and attitude and proclivity and so forth. There are many people who are tremendously accomplished um, at, who believe that it's very valuable for the sake of knowledge and our understanding to focus on little things and and to be exploring what's around in the real world and say hey you know I don't actually really understand that I thought I understood that but here's here's a thing that I'm uh that I'm missing uh or or do I really understand mm-hmm. this yeah sure we should you know it's that whole expression it can be trivially shown that and people just assume that everything can necessarily follow it's almost embarrassing to to admit something like that but this rolling up one's sleeve and looking at the world in a way that one is curious constantly about things all around and then trying to come up with some sense of explanation about what that might be. And it seems to me that that has been, as I was saying to you earlier, that that has been part of your style all along. And even, again, I don't know, but even when you look at, at your work, for which you won the Nobel Prize, and asymptotic freedom and all the rest of that, you're saying, what's actually happening here? There's, there's there's something going on in the world that we don't understand, and let's see if we can do our best to understand it. And particle physics and winning a Nobel Prize in particle physics, most people would imagine that is the highest possible level of abstraction in this very, very different perspective. Is that fair, what I'm saying? Is that a Totally, fair totally.
1: No, totally right on. I've... Uh, known, uh, outstanding physicists of both types. They're the ones who don't even want to think about something unless they see its possible connection to the most important problem. Um, You wanna do, (laughs) uh, one of my good friends likes to characterize it, you wanna do something that'll be in the textbooks know, the next generation. Really yeah. big, important. Okay. Um, yes, but it, it's a question of how, how do you get yeah. there? Or e- yeah. e- e- even, is that really your goal? Because to, I described earlier just the joy of figuring things difference. out. It
0: doesn't, it doesn't have to, to, to be you who did it first necessarily. You no, just the want The joy to is
1: the same. And, uh, you know, why do you do physics? So for some people, it is this, is it some desire to get to the bottom of things, and I'm, I'm a little skeptical, very skeptical, and I mean, we don't get to the bottom of things, but we get somewhere. Um, on the other hand, uh, just things, that I, I've been very conservative in my physics, um, and, and this is similar, I mean I'm not trying to invent new kinds of instruments. I, I, there are things that I would think we should be able to understand. There are a couple of examples in current uh, theoretical physics, what's called particle physics now, which has a very broad definition, um, which I find very gratifying because in the last 10, 15 years, I thought these really are the what I think are the most interesting questions, and yet they weren't at the forefront. I just had run out of the kind of intensity that's required to do particle theory at the professional frontier level. I mean, I did it for a while, and it's, for me, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, that's really what's going on. Anyway, the two examples, um, Hawking radiation, the radiation from black holes. This was this great discovery. Hawking, Beckenstein, they, and everybody repeats the story. And the story that you hear, you, yeah, 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 I got it. This is wonderful. But there were always questions you could ask. And I felt if you understand physics, you should be able to view it from a different perspective and get to the same answer. And the answer would be, no, 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 that's, that's hard. That's hard. This is the way we understand it. This is the way to do it. And... Um, they're just in the last, I don't know how to count them, five years or so, resurgence in interest, a realization, oh my God, there's something profound that we don't understand. Something like it must be true. At various times along the way, there were uh, b- bottles of champagne or uh, uh, encyclopedias bet and people convince other people, stuff settled, but not really, the, the, the kinds of things I wanna know, well, what happens? You know what really happens to the guy there? What's really going
0: on? Is this is information information loss. Well, like, what, what are we talking about?
1: The firewall business, the information stuff. Um, various perspectives said that it can't be the way we understand the uh, fuzzy something. I mean, it. A lot of it has to do with the quantum mechanics versus general relativity as a classical theory, which said, um, oh, this was great. Uh, Kip Thorne, who was a student of John Wheeler's gave a talk about a remembrance of John Wheeler. and Wheeler had been a nuclear theorist and decided he wanted to learn about gravity.
0: So we the best way... What? I didn't even know that Wheeler had been a nuclear theorist. Of course, he's lived for so long. <laughs>
1: anyway, sorry to interrupt. He decided he wanted to learn general relativity, and the best way to learn it is to teach a course. And Thorne and Misner are among his first students.
0: Was, oh, okay.
1: And this is this. Between them, this is one of the great texts. It's the, of the phone book. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, Wheeler, I guess, invented the name Black Hole. He's responsible for lots of good names, even though the concept goes back. And there was this issue about what comes out, just what comes out. And his students convinced him that nothing comes out, because he had taught them general relativity. And according to general relativity, nothing comes out. And it really bothered him. And they finally just beat him into submission. I think they outnumbered him or something. And in the end, there's something to what he said, that we're not making contact with quantum mechanics. And not just sort of settling the fundamental issues like string theory is trying to do, though maybe some people say that's necessary to resolve these issues, but just what's happening at or near the horizon because of the information issues, because of features of what quantum mechanics tells you, how mechanics really works, doesn't work classically For the particles even with if the gravity's doing some simple-minded version of gravity anyway there's been a huge resurgence in that the other thing that is a major active field is that when you do calculations in what we call um non abelian gauge theories which are the equations for the standard model the strong force the weak force the electromagnetic force all have this same mathematical structure you do complicated calculations And the answers come out embarrassingly simple. So you've got a notebook with pages, 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 forms, forms, we have an algorithm for generating this stuff. People invented huge advances in computer mathematics, doing algebra, were prompted by the desire to solve, to do these kinds of calculations. Mathematica, Stephen Wolfram is an example. And it then collapses to some simple form without any knowing why. So that has become, a major field both to get to the simple answer more efficiently relevant to analyzing the data from the highest accelerator, the LHC at uh, uh, CERN, but also there's a fundamental question of are we thinking about it wrong? And many people just think we're thinking about it wrong. So that's really the kind of way I've always been. It's just the mathematics involved is, I can't, um, I, it's beyond me at the moment.
0: Are there more and more people of this view that we're thinking about it wrong? Because sometimes, when you look at the sociology of this, as you said, people aren't thinking about it that way at all. They're no, not I don't think asking, asking this is a small.
1: This is a small specialized field. This is a small specialized field, and they're totally willing to give up all fundamental principles and look for some uh, compact set of principles which will generate the stuff that we came to believe is true. Now, you you know, we came to believe, what we came to believe in terms of quantum mechanics relativity, and then ultimately the models of particle physics, is very awkward and backwards and historical. We had electrons and photons, and we had insights about very detailed features and very small effects, which could be computed with huge accuracy, the 13 significant figures of the electrons' uh, magnetic strength it's an awesome calculation these days. Okay? But then we got to quarks. And we have a mathematics that's supposed that has a very similar structure. And yet you're not supposed to not be able to have a single quark. And there are features of that interaction which are really different and weird. And we got into it thinking about that the quark is like the electron, but is it? And we know it isn't. And the the forces that hold the quarks together are kind of like photons, but they're not because we see, we do things with photons, okay? We don't do anything with those guys. Um, So maybe the fundamentals, they don't have anything to go on except for the final answer. It's kind of weird. They're not doubting that we have some theory which describes nature to a great extent. They also then do something which uh, theoretical physicists often do. They say, well, that one's too hard. I've got this simpler one, and I'm going to work on that one. And so you've got people who are working on this one, which isn't, that's, is, isn't, is obviously not the theory which describes the particles we know. But it's close. And now you can ask, well, can we get some insight about its fundamentals? It's not crazy. It's not a, um, it's a in a sense, it's a small field.
0: It's not crazy, but at some point, it's sometimes you, you, you have to go back, right? I, I mean, maybe that's where the disconnect is. Uh, and we don't have to talk about this too much longer, but I mean, one sometimes gets a sense that uh, it's one thing to build a model and to build a simplified model because that way you can make some sort of progress, but then you, you have to always be thinking about reconnecting at the mm-hmm. end of the day.
1: Well, uh, the imagination here is that there will be lessons learned once right. we learn that there, there's magic... There are things happening. These an- answers that are simpler than they should be for some reason, and there should be lessons learned if we could understand it in this situation. Um, yeah, we do. You come back to it. I remember teaching freshman physics, and you know, you teach the pencil and whatever. One student asked this years ago: "When are we going to get to the real stuff? You know, where you don't ignore friction, where you don't." Like this is one of the the treasures of. Galileo and the gift to human intellect let's ignore friction for the time being and then we you're right we come back to it let's put it back as uh in terms of the concepts that we've developed in a world in which we had ignored it because if you don't ignore it in the beginning do not you, know where to go well got, um aristotle it sits on a floor because that's <laughs> where it wants to go it does what it wants to do
0: do you ever, you mentioned particle physics and, um, and, and the fact that you were thinking about it 24-7 and all the rest of that, and uh, obviously these fields move in all sorts of different directions and one needs a tremendous amount of intensity and excitement and so forth, and you're very excited about doing this, and there are all sorts of other connections, but do you ever, um, do you ever feel torn sometimes and say, be, not just necessarily the particle physics, but other areas of physics entirely? Because there's so many interesting problems. There's so many things to do that you think, oh gosh, yeah, that's really interesting. You go to a seminar and you think, oh, I'd like to know more about that, but I have to manage my time because uh, if if I'm spending all the time learning all these other things, then I won't be able to advance further with my research. Do you have any of those sorts of quandaries ever?
1: Well, I know myself uh, well enough to think uh, I can't do it. Well, nobody can, right? Well, I don't know about nobody. I mean, um, you you have to imagine that you have a a chance of succeeding. Um, It's hard. Uh, Well, so I've I've got a few years between then and now, and there certainly were times when I made a stab, and some of them I thought were quite respectable, not uh, world-shaking but totally different things where I decided I would, this was interesting. Uh, It had the same uh, personality characteristic that there, you know, I sunk my teeth into something that I thought I should understand. Right. Um, You might remember, it's now already some years, the first guys who succeeded in making what are called condensates out of gases. Um, That was a hot experimental field before they succeeded. And uh, there was a guy here, one of his students was trying to do it, and I got quite interested in that. And there were new things to learn, Um, uh, what is now called nanoscale uh, materials, just the solid-state physics. I was intrigued by one simple fact, which is kind of marvelous, and it's a feature of physics of the very small, and that's um, heat in a solid is represented by vibrations. We call them phonons, the quanta vibrations. They have wavelengths. When it gets cold, those wavelengths get longer and longer. You can make, it's not hard, something small enough. It's got billions and billions, as Carl Sagan would say, of atoms. But it's small enough and cold enough. This is not the coldest place in the world either. But it can be small enough and cold enough that the wavelength of the relevant heat quanta is much bigger than the thing. So it's essentially at zero temperature because it has no thermal motion. It's not; it's in contact with things that have that temperature and it's in equilibrium with I mean, it as a temperature, but there's no motion there. The things happening to the billions and billions of atoms, so you're now at zero temperature. And you can now tease apart, and this became a huge field of condensed matter physics, to tease apart the... Thermal physics from the quantum physics. We used to have really simplified pictures of both of them, and there's some heroes in the history of quantum mechanics who kind of had insights about solids which have essential quantum features. But um, we've made huge progress. Sounded a little bit of work there. Um, got interested in time machines where there are no things, but I so said I'm a little embarrassed about.
0: Okay, we can avoid that. I'll ask you that at, at lunch, because I would actually like to know what you're... But
1: <laughs> there, was a qu- there were questions which I thought you should be able to answer. Okay, let's put it that way. It wasn't hugely speculative. There was a way to carve out some very straightforward, um, Pulitzer-like question, which would have an answer, which I, some of it I was able to answer, and I felt good. So, But... Since then, the the issue of the black hole horizons and the information and the radiation or the other one that I mentioned about gauge theories being simpler than we think and reformulating the whole thing. Um, I don't have the strength. you got to... It's like being a graduate student again. You can't do it part-time. There's not enough... It won't. Also, I don't. You know, uh, it's like you go into a room to get something, and you get there, and you don't remember why you're there. Okay. Uh, that's hard if you're doing theoretical physics. Okay, it just gets harder. For some people, so you spoke to um, uh, Freeman Dyson. Okay, not long ago.
0: Uh, he's got
1: all his marvels.
0: He's a remarkable fellow. Yes, he. But but, uh, <laughs> but but so are you. Let me let me ask you um, a, a penultimate question, which is, um, and let's let's get back to the band show because this is what this this issue is is all about. Um, if I could answer, any, if I were God, and I could I could give you the answer to to any question, um, what would you want to know with respect to? any of this that's not the point that's the really point good, is, that's, is that's, that's a good answer i think that's, i was being superficial again that's not <laughs> the
1: point the point is the process is that it's like the toyota commercial life is the journey
0: i think it's the journey but there's nothing that you're that, that, that that's oh, keeping, like sh- keeping you up and it Can be a really small one. It doesn't have to be well, like the medium. Yeah, of but is that or the or one you? You know, you got your okay. one okay. chance. Okay. With I didn't the say Almighty. one chance. I just said if I were go- we're just we're finishing off a conversation. Yeah, you might come okay. back next week right, and ask right, me right, ask me another question. Right. What's bothering you today? What What would you like to know right now today? Given that you know we could meet on a regular basis, me as God and you. Uh, you
1: know. I expressed the frustration at um, the gap between what we can measure or think we can measure and what we sort of extract for understanding, right? we look at spectra, we look at the Fourier component. What What is it that we hear to know what to look for? And then there was the very specific of, so I told you that I love the story about the oboe and the clarinet. And I thought, OK. I stumbled into by trying to understand how the tailpiece worked. That was the simple question. My st- proposal was, that's what makes banjos different from anybody else. I don't know if that's true. And I don't know quite how you'd answer it. And I've spoken to professional acousticians of musical instruments. And they have their own ideas about how you would what it would mean, and I'm not sure about that. So I'm a bit, I'm a bit confused. Um, so the Almighty would tell me, he was kind of whispering, "Actually, that's that's there, but really you should look at, mm, you know, it's a hint." So um, there are other ones that I'm going to get to that might be characteristic. As I said, I believe drum, drum head, this kind of bridge, strings. That's what they have in common. What I like to point out to people who tell me about, well, the metal strings and the this and the heavy this is the characteristic sound. I say, Stephen Foster, America's first great professional songwriter, um, in many songs refers to ring the banjo. His banjos had no metal parts or banjos in those days. A Banjo rang long before there was any metal anywhere near it. They had the gut strings and the skin hoop and a thin uh, rim or gourd banjos and they rang. And what is it about them that makes them ring? Um, Keith Richards was interviewed. Someone asked him, you ever played a banjo? He says, no, no, no. That's, it was, to him it was just too mysterious. It just rings, (laughs) It rings. Um, So the banjo rings. And uh, I'm not even sure what that means. What should I be looking for? And that was, uh, you know, when you read a description of John Chowning's work, he said, well, I did um, acoustic frequency, uh, uh, frequency modulation, and it rang. And then you do it on your machine. It rings, you can hear it. Is that what you're hearing here? There are other people who say, no, no, you're hearing, This combination of, and somebody else points out, no, well, there isn't a mathematical distinction, okay? If the strings weren't damped and it was all steady, the thing going up and down would not introduce new uh, frequencies. It would just change the relative heights, and is that what ringing is? Because in general, there's, there's F... See, we studied this. The electrical engineers know about frequency modulation because that's FM radio. And they talk about sidebands and bandwidth and all kinds of things. We know about this. stuff. situation here is a little different. So I'm not sure what... But in my characteristic way, the next project is totally different and much more modest, which is a particular one style of banjo. Um, it sounds different. You can hear it. Some people like it. Most people don't prefer it to alternatives. And I built 10 variants to clamp. That's what you're looking at here. It has a different thing clamped on the back. Same banjo. Different thing on the back. It kind of goes inside and mucks around with what's going on inside. And I record them, and they sound different. And so here I have a machine which is actually shaking it, so it's not my peculiarities. And I stick the microphone up close, and... Try to see if I can connect the geometry of what's inside to uh, what I hear. And it's not working quite yet. But I, I like that frustration because sometimes it, it gets better. I, I have to remind <laughs> myself that. At the time, I'm very frustrated. Uh, whereas, a very um, uh, temperamental bunch, I mean, with my buddy Mark Wise, well other buddies too, you know, and then finally you do it and then it's done, and you're depressed. There's no sense of accomplishment. I'm I'm sure there's some theoretical physicists who feel some great sense of accomplishment in what they've done. But by and large, the thing that you do becomes public property, and it is public. And when you meet other people, they know you, they know your name, they smile, and they wanna know what's new. What have you done since? Right, so that's what they want, that's what, because they know about the other one. So um, you get that feeling. Of... So the the rewards are few and far between.
0: Well, there's the personal ongoing reward, though, right? I mean... Well, it's, a, it's frustrating.
1: <laughs> As a theorist, the stuff, your garbage can is full of uh, crumpled paper. Um, having a piece of hardware has a nice aspect, which is I can come back. I decided that the... I had a reason why I put a solid wooden back on it just to be instead of my belly. But I had this thing which I made before and I didn't use it yet, which was the synthetic belly designed so I could have a reproducible gap instead of my distance yeah. and chosen acoustical engineers said a closed cell foam that's good for absorbing cork that's good for reflecting kind of like human beings do you look up on some table and a hawaiian shirt because that's what (laughs) middle-aged guys wear right and uh cool so i'm i gotta now try that instead and see if it works works um i like it that uh i can pick up the banjo and play the banjo and not only say that i'm working (laughs) but know that i'm working that's a nice feeling
0: that's perfect Anything else you want to add, or are we? Because we, I don't think we have a, a huge yeah, amount about of time. Got ten minutes, time. but uh, <laughs> but uh, if if there's anything uh-huh. you want you wanted to okay,
1: let's see. We got add. we got the projects. We got the future project. Um, I got to slip in about the fifty thousand years and the devastation caused by recorded music.
0: Oh yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how society is uh, is, is is destroying itself due to recorded music, or shall we just no, uh, no, I don't forgive? even know.
1: Okay. I mean, and as, as I said, they're treasures to be able to listen to old stuff yeah. that got cleaned up or a little. If you, some people like the cleaning up, some don't, but we can do that. Um, those are treasures. Also, you know what? Something else that's cool is uh, when I was that I like about doing this now. So when I was active in particle physics and giving talks and traveling around the world. There was this phenomenon, it was in that uh, thing that you said you liked reading that I wrote. My advisor referred to them in Italian because he had many times gone in the summer to give physics lectures in Italy. And he referred to them as i fratelli fisici, which just means the physics brothers. But the point is you could go anywhere in the world and there were people in your field who you'd never met in your life but they meet you at the train at 6 a.m. that, for instance, went from Moscow to Leningrad. And there's a guy meeting me at the train. He knows my work, I know his work, and we're like old pals, and then we start talking about all kinds of things, okay? Anywhere. So, um, the modern, so that was traveling by air, by train. I now travel electronically. And, mentioned, uh, Gabby Weinreich, uh, Jim Woodhouse, the violin guy, um, was very helpful to me. He's an editor of a, uh, one of the two uh, respected journals in, of acoustics, which they, they mostly do engineering acoustics. They have a music section, and he's the music editor currently, help me. And um, Dan Leviton was a buddy of someone here. He passed through. And I said, I use your book. I got questions. We had whatever. I said, one of my students did a project and they discovered this. He said, Oh, yeah, I got a graduate student who did that. And da, da, da. so, a uh, connection to people. But this also means connection to luthier, luthiers. Greg Deering, I mentioned, who makes these. Um, a world class banjo player who's, I mentioned his name, Jens Kruger with the Bach thing, um, is officially a design consultant for Deering Banjos and passes through there. And I've got to talk to him at length about uh, hardware. Mo- many musicians have no interest in actual mm. mechanics, and he has a wonderful ear I mean he can tell you when they 're lousy strings or you know why they use these bridges they i, I don 't know what he 's listening to, but he can hear it <laughs> um, and he 's right and had many ideas over the years of improvements in the instrument. Uh, Deering credits him anyway, but that 's somebody who I got to meet through
0: right. uh,
1: The different worlds,
0: I mean obviously the practical aspect and being able to play, but also different worlds, different connections. You talked about the physics brotherhood, but this is another sort of brotherhood. Totally, totally.
1: There are people who, um, among banjo players, most don't, but there's a certain number who do a lot of fiddling with the hardware, or making some of it themselves, or making whole ones themselves, or making really marvelous whole ones themselves. There are a fair number, somebody posted this on one of the electronic bulletin boards. How many of you are engineers? And there's a long list, okay? It's not that most banjo players are engineers, but in fact. There's a non-trivial overlap. uh, There there are, yeah. Yeah. Um, Not so much physicists. Uh, The ones I knew in academic world who biologists, what can I tell you? One physicist, two biologists.
0: Well, maybe you're, maybe you're starting a trend. I mean, maybe, maybe, there'll be, maybe there'll be thousands of physicists. Well,
1: this guy Deering, his eyes get wide, so he passed the 100,000 mark. He's working the worldwide connections. His biggest uh, retailer is in Great Britain, but he travels around the world. He, like I said, on the one hand, he can't meet demand, but he's expanding his production facilities. There are places where they don't have Deering banchos. And as an entry-level instrument of various styles, um, they're really very good. There is this constant competition. There are instruments that look fancier made in China, which can...
0: Well, they may have a plant in China soon, so maybe they'll, they'll, they'll solve both problems.
1: Mm, not dear. I, anyway. He's, he's my age.
0: <laughs> uh, may, 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 maybe one of his descendants, but uh, but anyway, okay. um, uh, I've I've enjoyed this very much. I, I I'm. I wish I'd done better for, on the
1: performing.
0: You you, you you're, you're just Whatever. so. No, you're supposed to be I got you're, you're an extremely accomplished guy and well looking a, you're looking all upset at a banjo playing
1: and a, you can, the the physics
0: this is not what I expected you're you letting me down on, you, should, you can
1: go online and click on uh, my sound samples
0: which nope, aren't no too no bad. no no worries but but David I've had a wonderful time okay. thank you thank you very much a pleasure and uh, kind of interesting really interesting forgive me kind of kind, kind of interesting. Interesting. that 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 was it that was conclusion. kind of interesting well that's a that's a huge compliment okay you All right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mentioned Jens Kruger uh, so he's a performer reminded me of reading a um, biography of Louis Armstrong who'd grown up in orphanages and he was a fabulous musician but really just wanted to make people happy in the end which is what he did so yeah. Kruger likewise has some tough life story and I just mentioned of him yeah you're pretty feisty he looked at me and said feisty is that good? so <laughs> to assure him I,
0: I like that kind of interesting is really good I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual e-book and as part of the e-book and paperback Conversations About Physics, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Nima Arkani-Hamid, Arthur Eckert, Tony Leggett, and Paul Steinhardt. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For well, those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.